it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's business time, baby. You are listening to Solo Monster Sounds Off. It's such good shit. Mama Monster. Conquered! You like fighting a woman? Your behavior just hasn't been very oozy. Oh my God, we're only an hour in. Eric Bischoff is an idiot. We have two more hours of this. Maybe the single stupidest idiot that ever got into wrestling. Who writes this stuff? Bruce? Come over here and fight me! I'm the Sala Monster, damn it. (laughs) Welcome to episode 797 Sala Monster sounds off here for Sunday, February 26, 2023. I am the Sala Monster. I have got news to discuss on Vince McMahon, John Cena's return, King and Queen of the Ring, the end of Jeff Hardy's DUI case, with a very predictable conclusion. I've got AEW Revolution predictions for next Sunday. I've got thoughts on KG Muto's retirement at the Tokyo Dome and the battle between the IWGP champion and the GHC heavyweight champion for the first time ever. And Hulk Hogan's bullshit finally pushes me over the edge. I'm going to be talking about both of the A&E documentaries that aired this week. They have a new season now of WWE, these uh, Legends biographies on A&E, and they have their Rivals uh, episode. We had a documentary on the NWO and we had another one on the Hogan-Andre feud. So we've got a, a full five-course meal for you here this week. I hope you've got an empty stomach. If you would like to support the podcast, you may do so uh, by dropping a PayPal donation. You can do so on the Solomonster.com. You'll see the PayPal link at the top of the link tree. $10 or more will get you a nickname and a shout-out. I want to say thank you to Night Stalker, Nayef Al-Safar, Big B, Brian Pacera, Velvet Revolver, Robert Murray, the Chicago Slayer, Willie Eichard, Shin, Superkick, Akuma, who also dropped a bomb on the SmackDown stream on Friday night. So, Shin, thank you. The Diamond Dallas Dance Machine, Harrison Soep, John Raging Mad Riffle, the Wichita Workhorse, Clayton Nettleton, New York Punk, Arnold Modesto, Killshot, Keith Hart, and Rebel Jay Leonard who wants to wish a very happy birthday to his best friend and tag partner, Cannonball Cam Jones. A happy birthday to Cam, and Jay, thank you. And the Purple Viking, Jacob Garber, who lost his mother this past week. She was a huge Minnesota Vikings fan. Uh, He wanted to also shout out the Facebook group for helping him get through this past week. I've been emailing with Jacob, and uh, he knows that we're all thinking about him, and we are sending you much love, my friend. So let's get into it here. There was a bit of a scare this week after a report from Sean Ross Sapp on Fightful Select that a WWE talent reached out and told him that they believed that Vince McMahon was back in WWE creative. And he said that he could not get this confirmed at all. Later on, sources he said within WWE that would be in the position to know about this sort of thing told him that these fears are unfounded and that Triple H has been very open that Vince does have input, but 
Uh, he has been adamant that he alone has final say on all creative decisions. I'm questioning that after this Brock Lesnar Oma shit, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Wade Keller of the Pro Wrestling Torch later backed up Feifel's report, said that he was flat out told that Vince McMahon is not back in WWE creative. So that caused a little bit of a stir this week and got people talking. Triple H admitting that Vince still chimes in with his thoughts as he said, you know, several weeks ago, that opened the floodgates, rightfully, for people to think that he was slowly creeping back into creative. Him forcing his way back into the company in the way that he did only made people more paranoid. And it's perfectly logical to assume that a man who has spent his entire life doing one job would have a very difficult time letting go of that job, especially if he never really intended to give up that job in the first place, and he only did so because he felt he was given bad advice. I'm sure he's watched some of the changes that Triple H has made and the people that he fired that Triple H has brought back, and it probably makes him sick. But do I think that he's back in creative? Not yet. Not yet. There's a very good chance that it will still happen. All of this doesn't matter, though. People are losing sight of the one very important fact here. All of this doesn't matter until the company is sold. And we see who buys it. If it's the Saudis, I fully expect that Vince McMahon is going to stay on as part of the company. And there's no way he doesn't take on a bigger role in creative if that happens. Maybe he gets bought by a company that doesn't want him there. But then, see, then I don't think that he'll sell to those people. It's the same question that I asked when he first stepped down last summer. What is this man going to do with himself? He doesn't know anything else. I used to joke, well, how, how, how's Vince McMahon spending his free time now that he's gone? We found out how he was spending his free time, trying to get back in. And it worked. Between him forcing his way back onto the board and this, this cloud hanging over everyone's heads of a sale and not knowing what changes might come from that, every talent on that roster has a right to be worried. Not just this one person who talked to Fightful. I'm sure it's a lot more than just one person. Even Pat McAfee. Pat McAfee this week tweeted that he's not sure he would even want to still work for WWE under new ownership. It all depends on who the new owners are. If Brett Favre buys WWE, then we know that Pat McAfee won't be working there anymore. So the talent has a right to be concerned. Look, Triple H is not infallible. He is not perfect. There are still issues, very real issues with the WWE product. Some things feel the same as they did a year ago. A lot of things don't. But there are still issues with the product, especially on the undercard, and how they are going to replace, for example, the bloodline when that story is finally over. What does he have planned, if anything, to take its place? Because without that, WWE television would be a hell of a lot more boring than it is right now. In that same respect, he's made some changes for the better that have stuck. You know, one of the biggest things to me is how strong the secondary titles have become in this company. We just had the United States Championship defended in the Elimination Chamber for the first time, and it may well be defended at WrestleMania against John Cena. Right? The run that Gunther has been on with that Intercontinental title, he's been the best thing to happen to that belt in years. Getting rid of the horrid 24-7 stuff, junking the tired Raw versus SmackDown formula for Survivor Series. Uh, he salvaged the Judgment Day, which I didn't think was possible. It looked like it was on its way to the scrap heap last year. You know, on the, on the other side of the coin, for a guy who was running NXT all those years when they had those great women's rosters, 
I think the women's division on both shows and what they've been doing with the women has largely not been very good at all. They've actually taken a few steps backwards. So this is going to be his first WrestleMania. If we are to believe that Vince really will be hands-off for the first time with a WrestleMania, which, again, I have my doubts about, but you know he's got his first WrestleMania coming up, Triple H does, uh, so we'll see what he does with that. But this all feels meaningless to me to even worry about until the sale situation is resolved. And if Nick Khan is to be believed, that could happen within the next 60 days. We'll see if Vince gets his $9 billion. If I sold my company for $9 billion, I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to spend my twilight years worried about who Flop Dollar was wrestling on SmackDown next Friday. But that's me. According to a report from Brandon Thurston of WrestleNomics, WWE is planning two pay-per-views for the month of May, bringing back Backlash... On Saturday, May 6th, uh, not this WrestleMania backlash garbage, just backlash, the way it used to be. And a King and Queen of the Ring pay-per-view on Saturday, May 27th. Uh, they trademarked those names months ago, so it's not a surprise to see King of the Ring back and, and see them doing a Queen of the Ring. But them doing it Memorial Day weekend, the day before AEW typically runs its Double or Nothing pay-per-view, that's not going to go over very well in Jacksonville. Especially considering how upset Tony Khan was when WWE pulled this on Labor Day weekend last year. Knowing full well that AEW usually runs all out on Labor Day weekend, WWE went and they ran not only a big stadium show in Cardiff, uh, that was Clash at the Castle, but an NXT World's Collide show the same day as All Out. That was no coincidence. That was when Tony Khan had a meltdown at the press scrum and he compared himself to Jim Crockett Promotions... Only he said, I have a lot more fucking money than Jim Crockett did. And he said, I'm serious. I'm not going to sit back and take this fucking shit. Those were his exact words. In, in his little profanity-laced tirade, those were his exact words. He was angry. He had the crazy eyes when he said that. Having all that money, evidently, isn't stopping WWE from muscling in on his turf that weekend. Now, like... Clash at the Castle last year. It's not the same day as Double or Nothing. And I should also say, AEW has not officially announced Double or Nothing yet for May 28th. But, I mean, we know that's going to be the day. It's just, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when uh, they make the announcement. So it's the day before. It's not the same day. And like Clash at the Castle, which aired in the afternoon uh, here, East Coast time, it's very likely going to be the same for King and Queen of the Ring because per Mike Johnson of PW Insider, uh, he had this uh, report the other day, he has confirmed that it will be taking place in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I couldn't understand why they were running two pay-per-views in the same month and nothing in June. Uh, that would explain why, though. The May 27th date is the next Saudi show. In fact, the finals of the last King and, and uh, well, it wasn't Queen of the Ring, it was Queen's Crown. Remember the Queen's Crown? The finals of the King of the Ring and the Queen's Crown tournaments last time took place in Riyadh. That was two years ago at Crown Jewel. Zelina Vega beat Dewdrop, and Xavier Woods beat Finn Balor in the finals. So, I guess we can cross Sami Zayn and Kevin Owens off the list of possible winners, since they don't work the Saudi Arabia shows. Uh, I always liked King of the Ring. I thought that it should be brought back as a pay-per-view for the longest time, not just as a, a television gimmick. Uh, adding a Queen of the Ring tournament it was only natural since they do men's and women's Royal Rumble matches and Money in the Bank matches and War Games matches. Uh, so you had to expect they would do one for both. 
That probably means we're only getting the finals on the actual pay-per-view. Maybe the semis in the finals. You're not going to be, even if they wanted to run the entire tournament, you're not going to do two full tournaments on the same night. Uh, So it's only a question of, is it finals only or is it semis and finals? I would like to see stakes on the line. If you're going to bring back King of the Ring, you're going to do Queen of the Ring, there have to be stakes. You know, for years, King of the Ring has been a cartoon gimmick where the winner gets a crown and a robe and that's it. They don't get much else out of it. You know, Xavier Woods became King Woods for a few months until Roman Reigns stole his Burger King crown and destroyed it and that was the end of that. When King of the Ring used to be in June, as it was for many years, I I liked the idea of it being, basically being to SummerSlam what the Royal Rumble is to WrestleMania. And I think they should go back to that. But now... Now it's the end of May. This pay-per-view is at the end of May, and they have a Money in the Bank pay-per-view sandwiched in between King of the Ring and SummerSlam. Uh, Money in the Bank this year is at the O2 Arena in London. They just put tickets on sale this week. They sold out in 60 seconds. That's going to be a hot crowd that night. SummerSlam's a stadium show. They're doing it at Ford Field. Either show to me is fine, you know, but, but the winner gets a shot at the champion in the main event or the champion of their brand if they split the titles by then. But there should definitely be something on the line. And right now, looking at the potential field of candidates, my early pick for King of the Ring is Gunther. I think it's tailor-made for him. And not to walk around with a crown on his head for six weeks after. Steve Austin did not walk around with a crown on his head after winning King of the Ring. Brock Lesnar did not walk around with a crown on his head after winning King of the Ring. But he did go to SummerSlam and he did beat The Rock to become the undisputed champion. You know, if Gunther defends the Intercontinental title against Drew McIntyre and Sheamus, let's say, at WrestleMania. And right now, it's only Drew McIntyre who has issued the challenge, but I think it'll end up being a triple threat. And if he drops the title, which, by the way, in a triple threat, he does not have to technically be pinned to lose his title. But let's say he drops the title at WrestleMania. He could rebound very quickly by winning King of the Ring the very next month, and he could be wrestling Cody or whoever the Universal Champion is. If they split the titles and someone else gets the Universal belt, uh, that could be the main event of Money in the Bank. That could be the main event of SummerSlam. You know, if if they split the titles, let's say, here, here's a scenario for you. If they split the titles after WrestleMania, which I think they should, and Brock Lesnar somehow ends up with the Universal title after WrestleMania, Imagine Gunther winning King of the Ring and beating Brock for the belt on one of those two shows. Let's say SummerSlam. People were talking about Brock and Gunther for WrestleMania. Doesn't have to happen at WrestleMania. Boy, you got a big stadium show coming up in August. Brock and Gunther for the championship could be one of the feature matches on that show. But that's I think that's why Money in the Bank would be a more realistic goal for, for someone like a Montez Ford or an LA Knight. Those guys are not winning King of the Ring and getting a title match at SummerSlam. If you're going to have real big stakes like that, you're not having Montez Ford win King of the Ring and then go on to a a main event championship match at Money in the Bank or SummerSlam. But I do think that that is why uh, you need stakes on the line and you can have a, a Montez Ford or an LA Knight going for a Money in the Bank briefcase. King of the Ring, I think, definitely you got to up the ante with this thing. Otherwise, what's the point? Now, for Queen of the Ring... Yeah, we have Shayna Baszler, who calls herself the Queen of Spades. She's not winning 
Queen of the Ring. Charlotte Flair calls herself the Queen. I guess that trumps every other type of queen that there is. She's the Queen. If, if Charlotte Flair loses her title to Rhea Ripley at WrestleMania, Charlotte should be in the Queen of the Ring. Oh, I would put her in there. Maybe even go all the way to the finals. Give people a heart attack. Make, make them assume that she's winning because, oh, she's the Queen. But then she loses. And she puts over the eventual winner, whoever that may be. I would certainly not have her win the damn thing. The hell does she need to win Queen of the Ring for? She's got her Charlotte in the bank. She can cash that in for a title shot anytime she wants one. I could see Raquel winning it. I, I might go with Piper Niven. You know, she went all the way to the finals in the last one. I mean, she was dewdrop back then, but she went all the way to the finals in the last one they did. She lost to Zelina Vega. I was looking at the women's roster before. And a lot of it also depends on who's the Raw Women's Champion, who's the SmackDown Women's Champion. I presume they wouldn't be in the tournament. Uh, Piper Niven, though, I, I think would, would be maybe my early choice. Uh, I don't know. The women's one is harder to pick than the men's one right now. The Queen's Crown was a disaster two years ago. The longest match in the entire tournament was the finals, and that barely went five minutes. They just rushed through everything. Every match sucked. They beat Tony Storm in the opening round. That really set the tone for the entire thing. They beat Tony Storm in two minutes in the opening round. It was a catastrophe. Triple H needs to do the opposite of what Vince McMahon did with the Queen's Crown. Otherwise, there's no point in even bothering with this. Now, John Cena, I said I got news on John Cena. John Cena is returning to television with a live appearance on the March 6th episode of Monday Night Raw from Boston. They're going to be in Boston. Makes sense for him to be there. He moved over 2,000 tickets to the show in just two days after he was announced. So you talk about the real needle mover, he's the real needle mover. Uh, I don't know if he's wrapped early on his movie or they're just taking a pause to allow him to make an appearance and he'll fly right back because he's been in Australia filming, supposed to be in Australia through the end of next month. Uh, filming this uh, movie, I think it's with uh, Zach Braff, or, or is it Zach Braff? I don't know who, it, not, not Zach Braff, it's with uh, Zach Efron. <laughs> I got my Zachs mixed up. It's Zach Efron, they're doing a comedy down there. Uh, but that's good, that he'll actually be there live, so they can set up his match with Austin Theory for WrestleMania, and we will find out whether or not the U.S. title is going to be on the line. Uh, Theory successfully defended the title against Edge on Raw Monday night, they were in Ottawa, uh, he had an assist from Finn Balor. Edge and Balor, they're going to get to go off and do their thing at WrestleMania. Theory gets Cena. What do you do for a finish? A win against John Cena at WrestleMania would be huge for Austin Theory. And big picture, you want to have Cena put over your next big star, if that's how they see Theory, and I, I believe they do, then Theory should win. If the title is on the line... To me, it makes the outcome a little more predictable in my eyes, but, you know, John Cena could still win the U.S. title. He could do an open challenge for it, and he could drop it the very next night, or or if it's night one of WrestleMania, two nights later. The post-WrestleMania edition of Raw, if they have Cena in town, if he could stick around for one more date, he could do the open challenge gimmick, and he could drop the championship on that episode of Monday Night Raw. And what a great way to debut someone new, say... Jay White. If Jay White is coming to WWE and he's going to be free and clear by then, what a great way to debut Switchblade. All right, beating John Cena on his first night in to become the United States champion. I'm just, I throw that out there as an idea. So 
If the title is on the line, it's it's possible Cena could win, but only if the plan is for him to drop it that Monday night. Otherwise, he's just not going to be around. You know, it's just not realistic to think that John Cena is going to win the U.S. title and go on this month-long or months-long run with it. It's not going to happen. Very likely, if it's a championship match, he loses. But they could swerve us into thinking he's going to be sticking around longer, and then boom, you know, that Monday he drops it. What a big impact. If you're trying to debut somebody with a bang, uh, that would certainly be one way to do it. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Now with Bobby Lashley's win, and I use that word loosely, his win, at Elimination Chamber, he got left laying by Brock Lesnar, but he won. It looks like they're committed to, oh, they're committed all right for these fucking ideas. Committed to Lashley against Bray Wyatt for WrestleMania. That is the current direction. And Omos against Brock Lesnar. After MVP challenged Lesnar on Omos's behalf to a match at Mania, and he challenged Brock to show up on Raw tomorrow night to accept his challenge. Omos. I am hoping this is, as I said Monday, I am hoping this is all a trap being set by MVP to lure Brock Lesnar to Raw so that a reunited Hurt Business, including Bobby Lashley, can get the jump on him. Lashley can get his revenge on Brock for kicking him in the dick at Elimination Chamber and giving him all those F5s, right? We we get the initial stare down between Brock and Omos, which is probably the visual they're going for. We get that little stare down in the ring, and that's when Alexander and Benjamin and Lashley, they all gang up on Brock. You know, they could have Omos put him down with a tree slam if they want. And that sets up another match with Brock and Bobby. And then, of course, I would expect Bray to be involved. And so Bray Wyatt ends up getting involved, right? But you've got this reunited Hurt Business with Omos as the muscle of the group. He's just not the one actually getting the WrestleMania match. That I would be okay with. If they do Brock Lesnar and Omos, we we know it'll be brief, as most of Brock's matches are. I just, I, I don't have any interest in seeing Bobby Lashley against Bray Wyatt in a singles match. Any more than I do Brock Lesnar against Bray Wyatt in a singles match. A triple threat I can live with. I hope I'm right. Because Brock, Bobby, and Bray is a better uh, idea than Bray and Bob on one night and Lesnar and Omos on the other. You know, they do this from time to time. The Freak Show match, they did it with Kane and the Great Khali at WrestleMania 23. That went about five minutes. It was pretty terrible. But they gave Kali a run with the big gold belt later that year. They were trying to build him into something. They failed, but they tried. What is the end goal with Omos? 
And don't tell me making him world champion because I'll have you thrown out of here. I'm not even in the same room with you right now. I will have you thrown out of here. I'm, I'm channeling my inner monsoon. Omos hasn't even been on television. How many times have we seen Omos on Monday Night Raw since Triple H took the book from Vince McMahon? Twice? Three times, maybe? All of a sudden, he's getting a WrestleMania match with Brock Lesnar? I don't buy it. I'm hoping for a a Russo swerve on Raw tomorrow night. Now, we're also going to have Becky Lynch and Lita teaming up to challenge Dakota Kai and Io Sky for the women's tag team titles on Raw tomorrow night, with Ronda Rousey and Shayna Baszler likely challenging for the titles at WrestleMania. This sounds to me like it could be a backdoor way of doing some version of Becky and Ronda after all at WrestleMania. They're not doing a singles match, but this could put them in the same match. Here's how I see the whole thing here. I see it this way. I see it as, it's one of two things. Bailey tries to help damage control retain tomorrow when Trish Stratus gets involved to even the odds and Becky and Alita go on to win the women's tag team titles. Because Trish was backstage at Raw on Monday night. She was meeting with Triple H. She had a long meeting with Triple H, supposedly. And then she left the building. So she is going to be involved in this in some way. The question is how? I was thinking a six-person tag at WrestleMania, you do damage control against Becky, Lita, and Trish. But if Ronda and Shayna are challenging for the titles of WrestleMania, then that doesn't work. So Becky and Lita win the titles tomorrow night with help from Trish. Then at WrestleMania, the matches are Becky and Lita defending against Dakota Kai and Io Sky and Ronda and Shayna in a three-way. And Bailey has a one-on-one match against Trish Stratus. So that's, that's one way. Or they don't change the titles tomorrow. Bailey interferes for the DQ. Trish comes out after anyway. But the end result, I think, is going to be the same for WrestleMania. If I had to make an early prediction here, I think we get a triple threat uh, women's tag team title match. Becky and Lita. Ronda and Shayna. Dakota and Io. So that way, they're all accounted for. And then you have Bailey one-on-one against Trish Stratus. That's, that's how I see it. Now on SmackDown, Drew McIntyre walked out during a match that Imperium was having at the beginning of the show with Braun Strowman, Ricochet, and Madcap Moss. And he stood there and he watched. He observed. He did his best Dave Meltzer impression. He, he was the observer on Raw, on uh, SmackDown on Friday night. After the show was over, they did a YouTube interview with him. He flat out challenged Gunther to a match at WrestleMania for the Intercontinental title. So the, the, the gauntlet has been thrown down. As of this moment, it's not official, but it's going to be Drew McIntyre and Gunther for the championship. But what is Sheamus going to do? Sheamus is best friends on television with McIntyre. He doesn't have any obvious role on the show. It would be a crime, as great as he's been... Right, he talks banger after banger after banger. Well, if Sheamus is not involved in this, then he doesn't have a story for WrestleMania. And for him not to have some sort of big feature match at WrestleMania would be a crime. He fits into this perfectly. So this is still, in my opinion, going to end up as a triple threat. How they get there, I don't know. But there's another possibility here. They could do a triple threat match, and I think I think that's probably the way to go. And I think that would be an excellent match. You get all three guys in the ring together and put the Intercontinental title on the line. You're going to get the best Intercontinental Championship match one way or the other at WrestleMania this year. The best Intercontinental Championship match that we have had maybe in decades at WrestleMania. 
on a, on a show in WrestleMania where the title is sometimes not even defended. The other idea, the other possibility, you get two nights of WrestleMania. You could get two Intercontinental title matches out of WrestleMania this year. You could do Drew and Sheamus one-on-one, let's say on the first night. Drew and, or uh, Drew and Gunther. Drew and Sheamus, they could have a little friendly agreement going, Leo. Drew's going to get the shot on night one. Sheamus maybe is going to get the shot on night two. And they get a little friendly agreement going, hey, I look forward to seeing you in the ring on night two, right? We're going to get Drew and Sheamus one-on-one. Uh, but Gunther beats Drew on night one. We get Gunther and Sheamus on night two, one-on-one. This time with Sheamus finally doing what he could not do before, which is win the Intercontinental Championship. And remember, in that last singles match they had on television, there was some controversy during that match. And I said at the time, that gives them a loophole. That gives them a little opening they could come back to down the road, closer to WrestleMania, where Sheamus could say, you know, look, I had you beat in that last match. It wasn't a a cut-and-dry, straight, clean win. And I never did get another shot at it. So Sheamus should definitely be involved in this. I I think I prefer the triple threat idea. I don't hate the idea of doing Drew and Gunther on night one with the winner getting Sheamus on night two. I, I like that idea too. But I think the end result should be Sheamus finally winning the championship that has eluded him his entire career and giving him that big moment at WrestleMania. You're doing a King of the Ring tournament at the end of May. Again, I see bigger things in Gunther's future later this year. He drops the title now. It paves the way for him to become King of the Ring. It paves the way for him to challenge for the top championship this summer, maybe even win. But he he should be going on to bigger things than just the IC title, which is why... I have no issue with him dropping it at WrestleMania. I don't care whether he breaks the Honky Tonk Man streak. I said this a few weeks ago. It's all that Honky Tonk Man has is that he is the longest intercontinental champion of all time. The man doesn't have anything else. <laughs> Let him have his record. It doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is the story and doing the matches that make the most sense. And this to me is what makes the most sense. Charlotte Flair was supposed to go face-to-face with her WrestleMania opponent on Friday, Rhea Ripley. Instead, we got Charlotte Flair face-to-face with Dominic Mysterio, who was all over the show on Friday. He was out there with Rhea backstage, then he came out and confronted Charlotte, then he came back out later and cost his father the match against Karrion Cross and was pushing Ray around. It was the Dominic Mysterio show on Friday. So it was pretty lame that they uh, sort of bait-and-switched us on the whole Charlotte and Rhea thing. But Charlotte had a a very interesting quote this week. And I wanted to read it to you here. Charlotte spoke to the Daytona Beach News Journal. And she talked about why it is so difficult for her to be a babyface. She said, on paper, I just look like the bad guy. Ric Flair's daughter, 5'10", athletic, blonde, 14 titles, It's very hard to find a way other than a father-daughter relationship for the Charlotte character to connect to the audience. Why should we cheer for her? She has everything. Or, how do I relate to her? I don't know what that's like. So I've just ramped up all those things for the past couple of years. You say everything is because of my dad? I'll ramp that up. And just talking about being good in the ring, people don't like things like, Uh, like that. Being a good guy in the Rocky stories, I always feel like I'm Apollo Creed. You don't see me in the gym without my makeup, wearing my old t-shirt and five-year-old tennis shoes in my garage. You think Ric Flair's daughter, born with a silver spoon, with the best coaches in luxury training facilities. You don't see me as Rocky. 
And that's the greatest good guy story of all time, overcoming as an underdog. To be a good, good guy, you have to have people want to root for you and overcome something. I've been saying it since she came back. This woman is not a babyface. They can push her like one, and and, and look, there are fans that'll cheer for her, but she is miscast as a babyface. This woman is a heel. And she hit the nail right on the head on why that is. She's not stupid. She agrees. She laid it all right. She laid it out perfectly. The best good guys, you know, there's a reason that you want to root for them because there is some sort of obstacle to overcome. I mean, that's the classic story with Austin and McMahon, right? Austin was constantly having obstacles thrown in front of him that he had to overcome. That's part of the reason why the story works so well. That and the personalities involved. Austin's one of the biggest stars of all time and the Mr. McMahon character is the greatest heel in WWE history. So it all clicked. What, what is the obstacle that Charlotte has to overcome? She is the obstacle. So she's right. This is a woman who for years talked about being genetically superior. <laughs> that was her whole gimmick. I am genetically superior to everyone else. You, just, you want to see someone come along and knock that stupid smirk off her face. So I think she hit the nail right on the head. Pretty much... Nailed everything that I've been talking about as far as why I think she uh, is miscast as a babyface. And I don't know that she'll be a babyface for, for too long. I think within a few months she'll pretty much be back to doing what she was doing before. They had another Bloodline segment to close out things on Friday night. This was uh, centered around the Usos. And Jimmy Uso coming out, his brother, he couldn't get a hold of him all week. He wanted to talk to his brother. I know, I know you're hurt, man. I know you got problems. I want... You know, you to come out here and air him out to me face to face. And Paul Heyman told Jimmy before he went out to the ring, he goes, look, I got this text message from the tribal chief. Roman Reigns is going to be returning to SmackDown this Friday. That's going to be his first SmackDown appearance, by the way, in a month that we've seen Roman on that show. And he said that Roman told him he's coming back to handle the Jey Uso situation personally. If Jimmy can't take care of it tonight. And I don't know if that was a nod to Cody Rhodes telling Paul Heyman that he was taking Roman's titles at WrestleMania personally. They put the emphasis on the word personally. Uh, but Cody definitely needs to be on SmackDown. If not this Friday, then by next Friday. To have that initial face-off with Roman Reigns. Since Roman doesn't work Mondays, it's time Cody showed up on his doorstep and we got that first face-to-face in the ring. So I think either this Friday or next Friday, we're definitely going to get it. Uh, but, you know, Sami Zayn came out, out of the crowd in his hoodie, and he had a verbal exchange with Jimmy. Jay popped up, he was standing in the crowd like fucking Sting without the face paint, just standing there, looking down at the ring. And Jimmy attacked Sammy. Jimmy was calling for his brother to come in the ring. He made it as far down as the barricade. He never actually got over the barricade, but he made it as far down as the barricade. Sammy fought back, and it was interesting that when Sammy started to fight back... That is when Jay stopped. He stopped himself. And then Solo Sokoa came out and Sammy, you know, ran off into the crowd. So we had more drama here with the Bloodline stuff. I thought it was another excellent segment. And now business should pick up with Roman being back on the show this week. But I made the point on Friday. And this is, again, people are still very uh, bent out of shape about the fact that Sammy Zayn lost in Montreal. He lost at Elimination Chamber. How could they beat him? What a dumb decision. And Cody's not... All this all this nonsense. 
But I made the point on Friday, and again, some people just don't look at it this way. Sami Zayn, look at what he's doing right now. Sami Zayn has multiple stories going on right now on these shows. He's on both shows. Even this week, he was on Raw, and he was on SmackDown. Actually, he's been on every single show. He was on SmackDown last Friday, Elimination Chamber, he was in the main event, he was on Raw Monday, and he was back on SmackDown in the main event segment on Friday. And he'll probably, if I had a guess, be on Raw this Monday as well, and on SmackDown next Friday again. He's all over the place. He's got multiple stories going on right now. He's got the situation with Kevin Owens where he's trying to convince KO that the only way we can take down the bloodline is together. Individually, we've tried, we've failed, we've been overwhelmed, it's not enough. You and I need to reunite, we need to get back together, and together we could take down Roman Reigns and the entire bloodline, and Kevin Owens has basically told him, fuck off, I don't want to have anything to do with you. So that story is going to play out over these next several weeks. At the same time, we have Sammy coming out to address Jimmy. He wants to talk to Jay, right? He's still trying to kind of mend fences and convince them, look, you guys don't have to go down with the ship. It doesn't have to be this way. He's popping up all over the place. Sammy is still in a great position going into WrestleMania. He's getting more FaceTime on these shows than Roman Reigns. So all this talk about how, oh, it's going to kill Sammy if he doesn't win and it's, you know, it's a dumb decision because he's not, you know, the, the fans aren't going to be as into him or, you know, it's, it's just going to hurt him or kill him in some way. It's only been a week. I haven't seen any evidence of that. He's still very over and he's getting more television time now than he did before. So I think he's actually in a pretty damn good position coming out of Elimination Chamber. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Let's talk about Jeff Hardy. Jeff Hardy's Florida DUI case, which got him suspended without pay from AEW last year, was closed on Thursday after Hardy submitted a written plea agreeing to accept punishment for his crimes, but did not accept or deny responsibility for the crimes with which he was charged. Hardy was arrested on June 13th and charged with one count of DUI, his third offense, one count of driving under a suspended, canceled, or revoked license, and one count of driving while his license was restricted. Remember, he was swerving all over the road. At least four different people dialed 911 to report him before he killed somebody or himself. And the police dash cam video uh, came out. It was very embarrassing to watch. In Florida... A third DUI offense in 10 years is considered a felony, and he faced potentially up to five years in prison. He really should have spent time behind bars. 
The last thing he needed was a slap on the wrist. And that's what he got. That's more or less what he got. He was sentenced to 38 days in county jail with 38 days credited for time served. So basically, no jail time. I guess those are the days he already spent in rehab. They're crediting him for those days. He'll be on probation for the next two years. His driver's license is suspended for the next 10 years. But having a suspended license didn't stop him from getting behind the wheel this time. So who's going to stop him from getting behind the wheel next time? 10 years suspended license as if that'll stop him from getting behind the wheel if he wants to. He was keeping a physical driver's license, even though it was suspended. He was keeping a physical driver's license so that he could rent cars while he worked in WWE and then later on when he was working in AEW. And the rental companies, they don't check whether it's valid or not. They don't give a shit. Unless you don't bring their car back, then they care. Otherwise, they don't bother checking. So you can just flash your license and you're good to go. And that's how he was driving around. But as part of his punishment, he'll also be required to have an interlock device in his vehicle for a period of two years, which I assume is after those ten years are up, after the license suspension is over. Otherwise, it makes no sense. Uh, but that restriction on his license that I mentioned before, that was one of the charges he got hit with last June, violating a restriction, that was a requirement that he keep an ignition interlock device in his car, which is basically it's a handheld uh, breathalyzer that stops you from starting your, your car after you've been drinking. So he already had an interlock restriction, and that didn't stop him from getting behind the wheel wasted. You know who else was supposed to have an interlock device in their car and didn't? Tammy Sitch who then killed somebody. These restrictions, they don't seem to be much of a deterrent. He'll also have to pay over $4,500 in fines and court fees. He'll have to attend court-mandated DUI school or drug rehab and do community service. And his lawyer then filed a motion to suppress the breath test results from his arrest as unreliable, claiming that it was not inspected by the Highway Patrol the month before that he was tested, which violated a Florida Department of Law Enforcement rule where the equipment must be inspected at least once a month. That sound you hear? You hear that sound? That's called a slap on the wrist. Not that I'm surprised. Nobody should be surprised by this. I don't know what Tony Khan is going to do as far as Jeff Hardy goes. He said his return would be contingent on him successfully completing treatment and maintaining his sobriety. So he's going to have to decide if it's worth it to put him back in the ring I don't think Jeff Hardy should be in the ring at all anymore. If he's dealing with that type of physical pain and, you know, life on the road, if that's not a positive thing for him, then he should not be wrestling anymore. Having his license suspended for the next decade would make that even harder, you know, unless he just sticks with his brother and Matt drives him everywhere and they just go everywhere together. Uh, I'm sure Matt would love to have Jeff back. He's been a lost soul on uh, AEW television since Jeff left. But Jeff Hardy needs to focus on his health and not wrestling. Wrestling is clearly not a good influence on this man. How many more How many more years have to go by before you come to the realization that pro wrestling is just not a good influence on him? And that lifestyle is not a good influence on him. And the bumps are not a good influence on him. Matt Hardy tweeted, Incredibly proud of my brother. For the last nine months, he's worked extraordinarily hard on himself. He is in the best space I've seen him in for decades. I will always support him, believe in him, and love him. I am excited for your new lease on life and where it takes you. And I'm sure Matt Hardy wants the best for his brother. It's his brother. 
I want the best for Jeff Hardy. I don't want to see anything terrible happen to the man. Legally, though, he got off easy. And thank God nobody else got hurt. Because when you have four people calling 911 terrified that this person is going to cause an accident, that could have ended a lot worse. And I think of the Tammy Sitch situation. I was worried about that before it even happened. And then it did. And it could have been easily prevented. I don't want to see a repeat of that with Jeff Hardy. And I will say this again. For all those who missed it the first time when I said it in June. And I'm going to keep saying it. Every time we hear about something like this, whether it's Jeff Hardy or another wrestler. Jeff Hardy had these types of issues when he was in WWE. So have the Usos. And WWE always does the copy and paste on their usual one-liner about, oh, so-and-so is responsible for their own actions, right? Hands off, has nothing to do with us. So-and-so is responsible for their own actions. So this goes for WWE, and this also goes for AEW. Both companies need to draft a policy specifically for alcohol-related offenses. Whatever the policy is, if it's three strikes and you're out, if it's zero tolerance, whatever it is, put it on paper so there is no ambiguity whether you're Roman Reigns or Jeff Hardy or Jeff Smith wrestling on dark elevation. You have a uniform policy that applies to everyone equally. And if you violate that policy after a certain number of times, you're gone. I know these are independent contractors, but there are steps that can be taken to discourage this type of behavior. And try to get the message across that there is a price to be paid if you continue to do this. If you are a repeat offender and you think the rules don't apply to you, or maybe you don't feel that way, and you really just have a very serious addiction problem, right? Addiction is hell. Anybody, you know, people have told, countless wrestlers have told stories about how awful it is. I'm not discounting that. Maybe it just boils down to a very serious addiction issue. If your job is hanging in the balance, maybe you'll think twice before getting behind the wheel. Or maybe you'll think twice before saying when the company comes to you and says, we want to get you help, I don't need help. We want you to go to rehab. I don't want to go to rehab. I don't need rehab. I'll be fine. The consequences need to be real. This is what will happen, not... This is what could happen. This is what might happen. No, we have a policy and this is what will happen if you do this. Jeff Hardy is a very lucky man this morning. Got himself a good lawyer. Not everyone in his shoes is so lucky. For five days, AEW had the fans wondering what Tony Khan's next big major announcement was going to be on Dynamite this week. It was Rampage the Friday before when Excalibur said that Tony Khan would have an important announcement to make. And naturally, fans over the weekend began speculating about what it could be. Because when you announce something like that five days in advance, what do you expect them to do? Some people thought it might have to do with Ring of Honor launching its weekly show this Thursday on Honor Club. They taped the first two episodes, by the way, last night at Universal Studios. Claudio defending the ROH title against AR Fox is the first Main event of the new ROH era. But it wasn't that. I thought maybe it was a date for their second Forbidden Door pay-per-view. All of these things, though, when I thought about it, felt very underwhelming for such a big announcement on TV, if that's what it turned out to be. What we ended up with was an announcement that did not need to be hyped up for five days for television. Other than they wanted to do a big number. And they did. It worked. 
They were back over a million viewers for the first time since the Jay Briscoe Tribute Show. Before that, you'd have to go all the way back to October for a number that big. Now, you can't keep announcing your way to a million viewers every week. But the announcement was left to Adam Cole to make. Said that starting next month, and he did not give a specific date, which was very strange. He only said that starting sometime in March, there will be a new hour-long AEW reality show airing at 10 p.m. on Wednesdays immediately following Dynamite called AEW All Access. This is the, basically this is the spiritual successor to their Roads to the Top reality series that aired for one season a couple of years ago. They focused on Cody and Brandy. Uh, they had already started shooting material for a second season of Roads to the Top when Cody left the company. But at the same time that Cole announced this, Variety, almost like they timed it together, Variety dropped the official story on its website that the series will follow some of the biggest names in AEW, including Adam Cole, Britt Baker, Sammy Guevara, Ty Conti, The Young Bucks, Soraya, Wardlow, Eddie Kingston, and Tony Khan himself. It says each episode will follow them week to week as they seek to remain at the top of the company while also exploring rivalries between them. The show will also detail the lead-up to major AEW events and pay-per-views. So I wonder if we'll be getting footage of the pie-facing and the little pull-apart with Sammy and Eddie Kingston last summer that got Eddie suspended for two weeks. Maybe that'll be part of the show. Jason Sarlanis, the president of Turner Networks, told Variety, AEW has such an amazingly loyal and dedicated fan base That brings in more than 4 million viewers to TBS every Wednesday night. I read that, and I thought, boy, I'd love to know the math on that. Thankfully, I'm not a math guy, but thankfully, Brandon Thurston is. And Brandon Thurston of WrestleNomics uh, evidently felt the same way. He reached out to Warner Brothers Discovery for some clarification on that. And this is what they told him. What they told him is that the figure pertains to viewers who watched at least one minute of TBS from 7 p.m. to midnight every single week on average in 2022. And a spokesman for Warner Brothers Discovery told uh, Brandon, we attribute most of that success to AEW Dynamite. That's great for AEW. That's that's great news that they feel uh, the way that they feel. But it's nonsense. That number would include whatever airs in the hour before Dynamite and the two hours after Dynamite. Reruns of Big Bang Theory, that's the lead-in to Dynamite. That does big numbers. And then usually there's a drop-off when Dynamite starts every week. So it's some funny business that they're doing to get to that 4 million figure. Uh, The good news for AEW is that Warner Brothers Discovery appears to be all in on pro wrestling. It's a great sign that they're adding AEW programming on TBS at a time when the company is about to negotiate its next television rights deal. The more they can work with Turner, the more likely it is for them to work out a deal to keep them on their network. So that can't be taken as anything but a positive sign. The other part of the announcement is that Adam Cole is going to make his in-ring return that same night on Dynamite. So now we have an actual return uh, date. Well, not really a date per se. We don't know the exact date, but... Uh, We know it'll be sometime in March, in the next few weeks, that Adam Cole is going to be back in the ring. That being said, they needlessly promoted this announcement for five days on television for something that could have been announced in a press release. 
and on their social media channels. Now, maybe it was a TBS call. Maybe Turner, you know, was their decision. They told Tony Khan, look, we want you to really make a big deal about this. And we want you to announce it on TV uh, because, to, you know, to the network, they want as much fanfare as possible. Although I don't know how, I don't know that uh, they went to him and said, hey, on TNT five days before, we want you to say that you got a big announcement. Uh, that's that's totally a Tony Khan thing. But again, we've gotten these announcements before from Tony Khan that have in many cases also kind of like, eh, all right, you know. Someone had a great analogy for this on the, uh, Dyn- <laughs> the Dynamite stream the other night, and I thought it was perfect. This is the equivalent of your boss calling a meeting for something that could have easily been announced in an email. And I love that because it's true. But again, it's a positive thing for AEW, and without having seen the show yet, it can be a positive in terms of helping with character development and getting to know these people on a more human level, right? That could be a plus as well. Uh, Now, this is not going to affect the Wednesday night YouTube streams. I'm still going to be going live after Dynamite like I always do. Nothing is changing on my end. Uh, But there was some news as it relates to the next Forbidden Door show. I said I was wondering if maybe that was going to be the announcement, and it wasn't. But we did get news on the Forbidden Door. Now, this is not official from AEW yet, but Spectrum Cable posted a list on its website of all of its upcoming pay-per-views through the end of June. All the wrestling shows, all the boxing shows, and listed at the bottom for Saturday, June 24th, for a price tag of $49.99, is AEW Forbidden Door. A second show with AEW in New Japan was a no-brainer after the success of, of last year's show. It was only a matter of when, not if. Now we know the when, and we just have to wait for the official word from AEW on the where. Last year's show was held at the United Center in Chicago. They love their Chicago shows. I would say it's a better than decent chance they end up back there again. Uh, That's a few weeks before the G1 Climax typically starts. So it's sort of uh, an open period where some of the big New Japan names can travel to the U.S. and back, and it doesn't really conflict with anything. You know, their Dominion show in June doesn't have a date yet, but last couple of years, uh, New Japan has had Dominion earlier uh, in the month as opposed to later in the month. So, you know, late June makes sense for a uh, Forbidden Door show. I would love to finally get a singles match with Okada and Brian Danielson. But really, Brian Danielson against anybody on that roster would be fantastic. He missed the show last year. It was kind of like RVD going into the first one-night stand. You know, RVD takes credit for that whole idea and the fact that WWE even did a one-night stand pay-per-view in the first place. And he was all amped up about it. And then he had to have, I think, knee surgery. So he was on the show, but he wasn't able to wrestle on the show. It was kind of a bummer. Uh, Similar thing with Brian. You know, you have this big joint New Japan AEW show and they had announced the match for him. He was supposed to work against Zack Sabre Jr. And then he just wasn't cleared. Yeah, I think it was a concussion thing. So he wasn't cleared. He got replaced by Claudio. Um, I know Brian's been waiting to work in Japan for years. He just didn't want to work in front of all those clap crowds. Now they have cheering and booing back. And I would love to see him work some matches over there. Tony Khan was actually asked about that recently, about the possibility of Danielson competing in this year's G1. And he said it's possible that Danielson could be the AEW World Champion suit. And it would be hard for him to disappear from Dynamite, especially if he was their world champion. So he said, we'll have to see what happens at Revolution. Well, when Danielson loses at Revolution, maybe we'll get a better answer out of him. 
but for all the talent they have on their roster, they had to lose Brian for two or three weeks, you know, for the G1. I think they would survive. I think they would be okay. But that Forbidden Door pay-per-view, I've said, I think they're going to have stardom involvement this year. And if Mercedes is still the IWGP Women's Champion, that could be a big deal. Getting her on an AEW show that way for the first time. Not signing a deal with AEW, but getting on the pay-per-view as part of New Japan. And matching her up with someone like Jamie Hayter. Who I I feel like as, as hard as she hits, she'd probably break Mercedes in half. But June is still far away. A lot can happen between now and then. Who even knows if she'll still be working with New Japan at that point. Last week, I talked about WWE thinking they had a, a shot at a big free agent other than Jay White. The belief is that Kenny Omega is that name. And Tony Khan had not yet added time onto his contract for the nine months he missed for his injury. Well, Tony Khan has, in fact, added that time onto Omega's contract. This is according to Dave Meltzer. Omega's deal would have expired at the end of January, and it was extended for exactly how long, we don't know. But the belief is that the maximum it would take him to would be November. And so if he did want to go to WWE, it's going to be one of those years with everybody speculating if we might see Kenny Omega in the Royal Rumble. Uh, The feeling is that where Omega goes, so go the Young Bucks, whose contracts are set to be up at the end of the year. So all three of them, all three EVPs, may be negotiating new deals at the same time. All their contracts appear to be coming up right around the same time. And they all share the same agent, Barry Bloom. He would be the one handling those negotiations. Losing all three EVPs at the same time and having them walk right into WWE would be a terrible blow for Tony Khan. Not a death sentence, but it would be a terrible blow. And in fact, there are probably a lot of fans who hate the elite so much, they would argue the opposite. They would say that that's just what AEW needs, is to get rid of the elite guys and focus on all the other talent they have. I'm kind of in the middle. I think their roster is big enough and and talented enough that they would be fine. And it might even pave the way for a CM Punk return if Tony Khan wants to bring back CM Punk and he's not already back by then. But losing Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks and potentially MJF all at the same time, that would be catastrophic. Because that's been MJF's story for this entire time, right? The bidding war. The bidding war of 2024. January 1st, his deal is up. If you believe that he has not already signed an extension or signed a new contract. I would certainly hope that Tony Khan putting the title on him and making him the focal point of his company, he would not be doing that unless he already had MJF locked up for a lot longer than 2023. If he doesn't, and we were, you know, or he, I'm not losing anything. If if, if he were to lose all four of those guys, I mean, that's like ripping the heart out of AEW's chest. And how does that make AEW look? If three of their main event acts walk off Dynamite and right on to Raw and SmackDown. He can't let that happen. That would be as dumb as WCW giving the Radicals their release and them showing up in the front row on Monday Night Raw. Only Omega and the Bucks and MJF, they are far more important to AEW than those four were at the time to WCW. You know, with Omega... It just comes down to what the man's goals are. I pointed out last uh, week, he's on record as saying he wants to work a WrestleMania match with AJ Styles before 
his body breaks down and before AJ calls it a day. He said that years ago. Does he still feel the same way? Does he still want to work for New Japan? He was on Twitter teasing the idea of working a mixed tag match with Mercedes Monet. He's he's not going to be able to do that kind of stuff working for WWE. He's not going to get a Golden Lovers reunion in WWE. He's not going to be an EVP in WWE. So how important is that stuff to him? Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, conditions apply. See website for details. Dynamite on Wednesday was a step up from the past couple of weeks uh, of shows they've done. It was a good show. Uh, with a pay-per-view caliber opener between Orange Cassidy and Wheeler Yuta. Uh, we are seeing signs of either a heel turn soon or for the Blackpool Combat Club or, or just a harder edge with Claudio smacking Yuta across the face, telling him to get more aggressive. And then at the end of the show, John Moxley refusing to let go of the bulldog choke on Evil Uno, who was just pouring blood. The Dark Order comes out to stop him. We see Claudio and and Wheeler come back out to stop them. You know, the group has sort of lost its purpose, if you think about it, without William Regal and Brian Danielson not being with them most weeks. They don't really have much of a purpose at this point. But a heel turn can make things a little more interesting. Moxley ended up bleeding too, by the way, after the match. I mean, of course he did. I know what a fucking shock that is. He bled after the match. When Hangman Page came out and punched him in the head with a fistful of barbed wire. You know, if if wrestling had an SNL equivalent on television, they would have a field day with their skits and all of the blood in AEW. Tony Khan should start his own blood bank. On this show alone, we had Moxley, Evil Uno, Jungle Boy were all bleeding. Who else recently? Who else has bled on television? Danielson, Takeshita... Hangman. Who needs the Red Cross when you've got AEW? It's to the point where they were even poking fun at Moxley on commentary for this. It's become a punchline. Even Bully Ray. Right? ECW. Hardcore original Bully Ray. On Busted Open Radio this week. Said that he agrees that Moxley is bleeding a little too much. A little. A little. He said it doesn't mean anything at this point, which is exactly what I've been saying. And I've been getting attacked for it by some of the AEW androids. Oh, you're going soft. All of a sudden you don't like blood, you're going soft. I'm not going soft. Your brain is going soft. I'm not going soft. If Moxley wanted to slice his abdomen open and rip his own guts out, you know, Scream 6 is coming out in a few weeks. He could have Ghostface do it for him. Be my guest. 
Rip your guts out on live TV. Just don't do it every week. Save your guts for special occasions so it means something. The only thing is, you rip your own guts out, your guts don't grow back. So maybe don't do that. And I say this as someone who voted John Moxley the Wrestler of the Year for 2022, for the way he carried that company through some very dark times. He was their MVP. But everyone's got their breaking point. I think I've just about reached mine. I thought the Danielson-MJF segment on the show was the best thing on Dynamite. We had Danielson in the ring for a promo when he was interrupted by the AEW World Champion. The Brock Lesnar of AEW. Or at least he's got that sweet Brock Lesnar in-ring schedule. I don't know how or why he got it, but he got it. And we finally got to the heart of why MJF hates Brian Danielson so much. He talked about being left stranded by anyone he's ever opened himself up to. Whenever I watch these uh, MJF promos now, I feel like uh, he should be in therapy and not on live television telling us these things. I always felt the same way about Vince McMahon. If anyone ever needed some couch time with a professional, it's that guy. But MJF said, I'm the guy who got thrown away like trash by anyone who's ever claimed they loved me. And then I met a girl, a girl who changed my outlook on every single person on this planet. My dream girl, a girl I fell in love with. She convinced me not everyone in this world is bad. I became the man who got down on one knee and told that girl I wanted to start a family with her. I wanted to make a home with her. I wanted to have children with her. And do you know what she did, Brian Danielson? She left me. She left me because I'm unlovable. And the only thing I have in this life that I can trust, the only thing I have in this world that makes me feel unconditional love, is this triple B. That's the uh, the big Burberry belt. He said, the AEW World Championship is the only thing stopping me from grabbing a fistful of pills and calling it a day. So that was a little uncomfortable. That's the second time now that MJF has claimed in a wrestling promo that he contemplated suicide. The first time was after that rejection email he got from William Regal when he was first trying to break into WWE. He told Regal that he wanted to kill himself after he saw that email. I don't know if this is a cry for help or if I'm being worked. It's MJF we're talking about here. Sean Ross Sapp said the MJF promo had a lot of truth to it and that he and his fiance did have a split. See, I, I initially thought he was referencing a, a different girl earlier in his life. Not, not the one he got engaged to a few months ago, but I guess he was referring to uh, Naomi as her name. Uh, she's very talented, by the way. She's a very talented artist. Uh, all of her engagement photos on uh, social media of her and, and, and Max, they've been scrubbed. And she posted on Thursday that she is releasing limited prints that she has done in the past of MJF, signed by him from her original drop of 50. And once these are gone, she will not be releasing anymore. I don't know what to believe. But it fed into the story that Brian has a beautiful wife. He's got two beautiful children. He has all the things that MJF wants and craves, and yet he's got more trauma, more head trauma than anyone in the history of the business, and yet he still goes out there and he wrestles. And he resents him for it. He feels he doesn't appreciate what he has. And now, here you have Brian Danielson trying to take away from MJF the one thing that he does have in his life, which is the AEW World Championship. You know, I know some people are getting tired of these sort of 
uh, melodramatic stories from MJF. But I thought it was a very effective segment. They had a, a hot pull-apart brawl at the end that ended with Danielson laying him out with a, a forearm blast right to the head. Uh, and it's the hottest program they have heading into Revolution, as it should be, because it's their top program, right? It's, it's for the world title, so it should be the biggest one they have. But really, there's nothing else on their television right now that even comes close. Uh, Ricky Starks, he outsmarted Chris Jericho into signing a contract to wrestle him again at Revolution. Uh, this time without any uh, outside interference. I'm going to talk about that in a second. Uh, Jeff Jarrett, he won a tag team battle royal to send him and Jay Lethal to Revolution as one of four teams wrestling for the AEW tag team titles, which we've already seen them wrestle for the titles on television. Now they're going to get another title shot. If FTR shows up as the Jokers in the Casino Battle Royal this Wednesday and they win, which is my prediction, then I can excuse it. I mean, it's still Jeff Jarrett on television winning a Battle Royal, but whatever. Uh, nothing new on Wednesday from the Elite and the House of Black. They saved that for Rampage. The Young Bucks beat Aussie Open. They had a very good match. Omega came out after the match to celebrate with the Bucks, and the lights went out. And when they came back on, the House of Black were surrounding the ring. The lights went out again. And when they came back on, they were gone. If they don't want these six guys to touch before Revolution, I get that. But these guys need to be on Dynamite this week, not Rampage. It is very disappointing the way that Tony Khan has been using Malachi Black. Very, very disappointing. Dynamite this Wednesday has Orange Cassidy defending the All-Atlantic title against Big Bill, Tony Storm against Riho, Chris Jericho against Peter Avalon, that has uh, Rock against Hurricane written all over it from 2003, when uh, Steve Austin distracted The Rock and he cost him the match. Watch Ricky Starks do the same uh, here in this match. To this day, Hurricane Helms is the last person to ever beat The Rock on Raw. Uh, Hook makes a rare FTW title defense on Dynamite against Matt Hardy. They're doing a Casino Battle Royale for the final spot in the tag team title match of Revolution. And they're doing the Face of the Revolution ladder match on Dynamite instead of the pay-per-view. Because the pay-per-view card is long enough as it is. With an Iron Man match in the main event. So they bump the ladder match to Dynamite. Kind of like how WWE does the Andre Battle Royal on SmackDown now instead of on the actual WrestleMania card. Even though they have two nights of WrestleMania. So they're doing a battle royal and a ladder match on television this week. The ladder match is for a future shot at the TNT Championship. So Samoa Joe, the reigning champion, he'll be sitting in on commentary for this. The match has Konosuke Takeshita, Will Hobbs, Sammy Guevara, Eddie Kingston, A.R. Fox, Action Andretti, and the debuting Commander from AAA. The only two names it should be are Takeshita or Hobbs. And that is going to completely depend upon who walks out of Revolution with the TNT title. If it's Samoa Joe, Joe and Takeshita would be fucking incredible. If it's Wardlow, then Hobbs should win. And they can revisit the Wardlow and Will Hobbs feud. Now, AEW Revolution is a week from tonight from the Chase Center in San Francisco. Their first California pay-per-view. They're set up for just under 10,000 fans in the building. Only 7,000 tickets sold so far. Uh, actually, maybe a little under 7,000, which has to be a disappointment for a pay-per-view. I don't see any positive way to spin that number. By the time we get to Revolution, there's this walk-up. You know, Maybe they'll have close to 10K. 
but they should be pulling in 10K with ease for a show like this. They only have four pay-per-views a year. So, yeah, and it's a new market, but, you know, they should be pulling 10K easily for a show like this. I, I think it's also reflective of the build. The build for this show has been largely very cold. But here's the card as it stands, and I'm going to give you my early predictions. I know we still have two two shows left on television this week, but I'll give you my early predictions here a week out. Uh, they may add things on TV this week. I hope not. <laughs> I hope not. I think seven matches with an hour-long main event is is perfectly fine. We have Chris Jericho against Ricky Starks. The build has been very strange, given that Ricky already beat Jericho once, and he has been fighting to get another match so that he can beat him a second time. Ricky should win here. They need to make it clear the first win was not a fluke. But Jericho wrestling Peter Avalon on Dynamite this week, let's say if Ricky costs him the, the, the match, it makes me nervous. Because does Jericho lose to Peter Avalon on Wednesday, let's say if that happens, and then lose again on Sunday? So that's number one. Number two is what really worries me. The stipulation for this match in their graphic originally was that everyone is banned from ringside. I said that right at the top of the graphic. Everyone is banned from ringside. That graphic has since been changed to... The Jericho Appreciation Society is banned from ringside. So everyone is no longer banned from ringside. Jericho filed a trademark application two weeks ago for the name Jericho, which was the name of his tag team with Big Show when they were the tag team champions in WWE. Paul White now works for AEW. Not only does Paul White work for AEW, he plans to be back in the ring as early as next month. He says that he's been recovering from knee surgery. He was in a wheelchair for 11 weeks or something like that. He just got a new titanium joint that's good for the next 35 years, and he's been training to get back in the ring. So Jericho files the trademark application for Jericho, and they change the wording of the stipulation, and you've got Paul White talking about getting back in the ring soon. We're going to be getting Big Show involved in this match, aren't we? I think so. And because of that, I'm predicting a Chris Jericho win. We got the Gun Club. Defending their AEW Tag Team titles in a four-way match against the acclaimed Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal and the winners of the Casino Battle Royale this Wednesday on Dynamite, which again, I think is going to be FTR. Uh, But I don't think the titles are changing back yet. It still feels to me like Billy Gunn is going to end up siding with his sons and helping them retain. So I'm picking Gun Club for the win. Samoa Joe, the king of television. He defends the TNT Championship against Wardlow. Joe is also the Ring of Honor television champion. And with, you know, ROH starting its new weekly show this week. That's where I think he's going to be spending most of his time going forward. Uh, This was always designed for Wardlow to come back and get his revenge. This is where I think he takes back the TNT title. And I can only hope that Tony Khan does better by Wardlow this time than he did the last time, because his last run as TNT champion was a completely forgettable, uh, really very just blasé, bad run that did not do him any favors. In fact, it cooled him off. It cooled off one of his hottest baby faces. Now he has to heat him back up again. It's like a fucking plate of food, putting it in the microwave. He's going to try to heat up Wardlow again, back to where he was. I mean, he's still over, but you know, to... Heat him back up to where he was before. 
This is step one in that process. Jamie Hayter defends the AEW Women's Championship in a three-way dance against Soraya and Ruby Soho. Soraya, she has not wrestled much since she debuted. Uh, Only four matches, two of which were tag team matches. Her run has been a disappointment. Her run has been a disappointment. In the ring, she may be holding back a little bit, which is understandable. She needs to stay healthy. Uh, But even out of the ring, even her out of the ring segments, it's just been very underwhelming. This is her chance to go out there and show what she can really do. This is going to be a real test for her. Her first championship match in seven years. Since 2016 against Charlotte Flair. This is the biggest spotlight for Ruby Soho since she came back from her injury. And Jamie Hayter is is killing it right now. She's not losing that title. That would be very dumb. But I don't know how this match is going to go. You have a collection of three women that haven't worked together before. You know, triple threats can be a clusterfuck depending on who's involved. So I, I don't know how good the match will will or won't be. Uh, but Jamie Hayter is retaining. The drama, I think, may come after the match is over. You know, if if Ruby was to still end up possibly aligning with Soraya and Tony Storm and joining their little Outsiders crew, I think that's still a possibility. But Jamie Hayter is going to retain her title. We have John Moxley, one-on-one against Hangman Adam Page in a Texas death match. Hangman beat Moxley last month. Moxley came back and beat him a few weeks ago. As protected as John Moxley was for much of last year, it would be more interesting to see him start losing and spiraling into madness, especially if these teases of a possible heel turn for the Blackpool Combat Club are, are any hint. All the more reason to think that Moxley is losing here, and he should. I've got Hangman going over and what we all know is going to be a bloodbath. I expect Moxley to be bleeding within the first 60 seconds of this match. I've said my piece on the blood stuff, but in a Texas death match to blow off the feud, this is where you would expect both men to get color. There's going to be lots of plunder and barbed wire and garbage and stuff, but in the end, I think Hangman gets the win. We have Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks, the Elite, defending their AEW World Trios titles against the House of Black. The build for what is really the biggest possible match they could do in this trios division has consisted of some spooky House of Black videos and the elite playing basketball. Riveting. Riveting storytelling. Nick Jackson's jump shot is not going to help them in this match. But that could all be washed away by these men going out there and tearing the house down. The only house being torn down would be the House of Black if they were to lose this match. They need this. They need something. Tony Khan needs to give these men something. The House of Black should beat the Elite and win the trios titles. And I think they will. I'm picking the House of Black to win. They have been feeding the Elite some wins on TV to keep them busy. If they win here, my question is then what? Let's say the Elite wins. Then what? A rematch? A rematch makes sense if they lose. And they want to win the titles back. Then you can do a rematch. The House of Black should walk out the new trios champs. That is the only acceptable outcome here. And we need Kenny Omega back doing singles matches. I'm sorry. Not not just this trio stuff. He needs to be back in singles matches. You know, I noticed that they're doing Dynamite and Rampage uh, in Winnipeg on March 15th, which is Omega's hometown. It's also where Chris Jericho grew up. Remember, I'm from Winnipeg, you idiot. Right? He wasn't born there, but he was raised in Winnipeg. I would like to see them give Kenny Omega a big match on that show. Maybe against Adam Cole? If that turns out to be the night he returns... 
I know Adam Cole's a babyface now. He may not be, he may not be in Winnipeg if he's in the ring against uh, Chris Jericho or Kenny Omega. But either one of those matches, I think, would be a big attraction for that episode of Dynamite if they wanted to do Adam Cole against either one of them. And then we have the main event. A 60-minute Ironman match for the AEW World Championship. MJF defends against the American Dragon, Brian Danielson. The last hour-long match with Brian Danielson was against Hangman Page, and it was outstanding at Winter is Coming two years ago. That was different in that we did not know going into it that it was going to go the distance. Here, we already know it's going to go the full 60 minutes no matter what. It is up to these two men to make the first half of the match as interesting as possible and keep the fans engaged. That can be a problem with an Iron Man match. That's the drawback of doing an Iron Man match. I have always thought that announcing it as a 60-minute match in advance hurt the Bret Hart-Shawn Michaels WrestleMania match. Especially if it was only going to go one fall anyway. It would have been a lot better in hindsight not to know that going in. But this has been the best story on AEW television since MJF killed off William Regal. It's a familiar story with MJF forcing his opponent to jump through hoops to get a match against him. It's basically been every single feud that MJF has ever had. He did the same thing with Cody Rhodes. He made Cody wrestle Wardlow in a cage. And then if he beat Wardlow, he would have to take the 10 lashes, right? So they did this with Cody. He did the same story with Chris Jericho, the labors of Jericho. He did it with CM Punk. He did it with Wardlow. And now here he's doing it with Brian Danielson. He even acknowledged it on TV. He said, it's it's kind of my thing that I make people jump through hoops. It's very repetitive. But it also gave us some fantastic TV matches with Danielson against Takeshita and Bandito and Roosh. Uh, he also had the match with Timothy Thatcher and he won all of them. His win streak comes to a halt next Sunday. I think MJF will be up Three falls to two, heading into the final moments. Brian's going to have him in the label lock. MJF is going to be trying to hang on just long enough to run out the clock and retain the title by the skin of his teeth. By a single fall, I think MJF will win the match. I, I can see the Dynamite Diamond Ring coming into play without the referee seeing it. He knocks Brian out. Maybe that's how he runs out the clock. But MJF is not losing the big Burberry belt in his second title defense. So MJF wins. And I was thinking, you know, what next, right? He beats Brian Danielson. Where does MJF go from here? Who, who are the future title defenses for MJF? If Hangman Page beats John Moxley in the Texas Death Match, they could very well uh, push Hangman back up into the world title picture, and you can have the two, you know, two AEW originals in MJF and Hangman going at it for the championship, right? That could be a match. Uh, Wardlow is always a possibility because of their history together and the fact that the one match they did have, Wardlow didn't just beat him, he annihilated him. But if Wardlow is going to win the TNT title back, they're not going into Wardlow and MJF this soon. That, that could be further down the line. Adam Cole. I absolutely think Adam Cole is going to challenge MJF for the championship sometime this year. The only question is what pay-per-view. Double or nothing feels too soon. All Out in Chicago seems just right. Unless CM Punk comes back. And if CM Punk ends up coming back to AEW, then you could do CM Punk and MJF, which is the match they were going to do at full gear before all their plans went to hell. So all of those names are are possibilities. I don't know which one they go with next. Hangman would seem the most likely to me. 
Because again, Cole too soon, Wardlow, if he wins the TNT title, it's not the right time. But there is, I look a little further into the year. I look further into the future. And I, I think I even pitched this idea uh, when they, uh, the story on Sting came out a few months ago and he talked about how this is going to be his final year. The more I think about it, the more I like the idea. And I don't know if Sting wants to do this. I don't know if he wants a singles match. You know, he may want to retire doing a tag thing with Darby. But I love the, the idea of a story around Sting. If this is his final year in wrestling, and he really is calling it quits, right? We just saw Muto the other uh, day wrestle his final match, right? That was the end of one legendary career. Uh, Sting tagged with him in January, right? Because they had history together. Sting is barreling towards his final match. And what a great story it would be. And Sting is still very popular. And Sting can still go, right? He probably can't do a, a terribly long singles match, but he can still go. You build a story around Sting. Wanting to have one last run as the champion. Or, or to win that one last title. Maybe Darby is hyping him up the way that he hyped up Darby before Darby won the TNT belt back from Samoa Joe. And Darby says, you can do it, man. You can be the champion one last time before it's all over, before the sun sets. I believe in you. You could be the AEW world champion. You could beat this guy. And Sting has some matches and he's racking up some wins. And you build to a match with MJF and Sting. I'm sure MJF would love to sink his teeth into that. And they end up having a match and it can be on a big episode of Dynamite or it could be Grand Slam. It doesn't even have to be a pay-per-view. But you have Sting and MJF for the title, title against career. And that then leads into a Darby Allen program. So it's not just for the vanity of, let's just give Sting another title match before he retires. There's a longer term plan here where Darby Allen gets involved. So MJF can retire Sting. And uh, that's certainly better than fucking uh, Boren Corbin retiring Kurt Angle. He retires Sting, title against career, that leads into a Darby Allen pro, uh, program. Two of the original pillars of AEW. They had an excellent match to open up full gear a couple of years ago, and I always thought the next time we see these two in the ring locking it up, it would be in the main event for a world title. So it just it segues perfectly then into a feud with Darby Allen and MJF for the championship later in the year. So the more I think about that idea, I really, I like it. I think that there could be a, a great story to be told there. And what a way for Sting to go out, right? He's not going to win the title, and it puts even more heat, if that's possible, on MJF. Uh, so all of those things, and Darby then connecting it to him, I just think it makes sense. Uh, one other name I would throw out there, though, as far as who wrestles MJF, who takes the title eventually from MJF, I throw Ricky Starks out there. I think Ricky Starks, a year from now, could very well be the AEW World Champion. That was left unresolved. The way that MJF beat him in their last match, that was left unresolved. And they could always, like with Wardlow, they could always come back to Ricky Starks and MJF. But to me, I think Ricky Starks and Wardlow would have to be the leading contenders as far as who eventually takes that championship off of MJF. Those would be the two front runners as, as far as I can see. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, some other news and notes. I mentioned uh, KG Muto. I watched most of the pro wrestling Noah Last Love show from the Tokyo Dome with. Muto's final match, uh, said to be around 30,000 fans in the building, which is more than New Japan had for uh, this year's Wrestle Kingdom. They had wrestlers from Pro Wrestling Noah, New Japan, Tokyo Joshi Pro, DDT, Dragon Gate, that were all there. There were four matches pitting New Japan talent against Noah talent, and New Japan swept every single one of those matches. <laughs> I question the wisdom in Noah not winning at least one match on their own show. Uh, Ghetto and Taiji Ishimori representing Bullet Club, they beat Mazada and Nosawa in what was billed as Nosawa's final match. Uh, he took the loss for his team in under five minutes. Nosawa wanted it to be Ishimori who ended his career. So he's on his knees, his arms are outstretched. He's telling him, basically, finish me, finish me off. He even leaned back and told his partner when his partner tried to roll into the ring, he told his partner, get out of the ring. Stay back. Stay out of this. And then he turned back to face Ishimori, who was standing there crying. And he gave Ishimori the cutthroat signal to go ahead and end it. And he did. And Nosawa and Ishimori, they first met in Mexico something like 20 years ago, I think. Uh, Ishimori looked up to him as a mentor and as a friend. It's one of those deals where when you are new to the business and you're away on excursion... And you're in this foreign country and you don't know anybody. You form a bond with the people who help you out and who look out for you. And that was the nature of their relationship. Nosawa looked out for him. So a lot of people may not even know that story, but knowing it made the finish more meaningful, even though the match itself was, was very short. And really the match itself was nothing to write home about. But if you have the context and you know the backstory, then you could see why the finish was so emotional because it's you see Ishimori crying and it's like why is he crying well if you know the backstory then you know why then Hiromu Takahashi the IWGP junior heavyweight champion pinned Amakusa the GHC junior heavyweight champion very good match uh the match I was looking forward to the most though was Okada the IWGP heavyweight champion against Kaito Kiyomiya the GHC heavyweight champion non-title of course For the first time ever, coming out of that great work shoot angle they did, it went the way that I figured it would, with Okada coming out on top, as he should have, because Kiyomiya is not at his level yet. Okada walked in, he was very dismissive of this kid. Kiyomiya was intense, like he was out to prove something. Okada was treating this kid like an underling. And then it slowly got more competitive. Kiyomiya started targeting the Rainmaker arm, he finally connected with uh, the Rainmaker, but then he pulled Kiyomiya's head up before the three count. And I'm thinking, man, what a dick. Just so he could punish him some more, hit an Emerald Flosion, hit another Rainmaker, and then he pinned him. If this was the WWE champion against the AEW champion and Roman Reigns went over on MJF the way Okada did here, people would be shouting, what a burial this was. 
Oh, they would be shouting it from the highest... I mean, they would burn down the internet wrestling community. I could just imagine what the discourse would be like if that happened. If the plan is for another match, maybe Kiyomiya gets the win there. I hope they do another match. This one was excellent. This was an excellent match. Uh, I know why Noah agreed to this. They did a bigger crowd than New Japan did at this, in the same building the month before. You know, that does not happen without this match being added to the card to sell more tickets. So I get it. Uh, you know, that's what they got out of it. But it's one of those short-term gain versus long-term benefit deals. If they, if they continue the story with these two, then it's fine. Uh, this entire build was Okada just big-leaguing him and treating him like a chump. He didn't even accept the match officially until a week beforehand, even though they were already <laughs> advertising it. He says, there's no match. I never agreed to this. He didn't bother to show up at the press conference last week. And then when the match was over, Okada immediately grabbed his belt. And this man could not have left that ring and could not have left that building fast enough. Even if it was only for this one match, though, I, I enjoyed the little throwback to the cocky Rainmaker persona from 10 years ago. I'd like to see more of that Okada, actually. Uh, but yeah, this was excellent. Hopefully not the last time we see it. Now, coming into this show... Muto said that he couldn't even walk. He tore both hamstrings. He didn't know how he was going to manage in the ring. I don't know how I'm going to do this. He said the wrestling gods were testing me. For a man who could barely walk and was being pushed around in a wheelchair for the whole week, he looked more than capable in the ring. And he ended up having a very good match when you consider his limitations. He got in the ring. Well, even before that, he got the big entrance. And they were mixing what I what I guess were all of his old entrance songs. So he got the big spectacular entrance. Uh, he was going one-on-one with Tetsuya Naito. And we had Naito back in the main event at the Tokyo Dome, just not on the show that he probably wanted it to be on. Uh, Naito was selling his ass off, bumping his ass off for Muda. Muda went up top. He teased one final moonsault. He thought better of it. I think he would have exploded into a cloud of dust had he hit that. Uh, so he climbed down. Naito ends up winning with the Destino. And then during the post-match promo that Muda was giving in the ring, Muda looks over and he calls out Masahiro Chono, who was sitting at ringside doing commentary, as he usually does. Chono has not wrestled a match in probably eight or nine years. He walks around with a giant walking stick now, like he's Gandalf. And Muda challenged him to an impromptu match. And they played Chono's music, and he got up, and he got into the ring. For what turned out to be a secret main event. This is like that uh, secret main event we got at WrestleMania 36 at the Performance Center. After Drew McIntyre beat Brock Lesnar. Then he wrestled the Big Show. And they aired that on Raw, I think, the following night. We got a secret main event. This was... this. It's, I'm, I'm thinking back to which was the better of the two... <laughs> this which was the better of the two matches here. At least this one was kept short. But how fitting... After all of these final matches that Muda has had over the past couple of months, that what was supposed to be his final match, like his real final match, ended up lasting not even five minutes. But what was cool about it was that Shono never got a proper retirement of his own. And here, not only did he get that match, he got it at the Tokyo Dome, and he got it with a win. You know, they didn't do much. They had a long collar and elbow tie-up. Shono hit a Shining Wizard. He locked in the STF for the ta- he, he locked in the STF with a uh, an Apple Watch on, so the watch was like digging into uh, Muda's face, and Muda tapped out. Muda lost back to back matches. That may have been the biggest shock of all. 
But these two men, they debuted together on the very same day in 1984. They were in a Young Lions match against each other. Muto won that match. Muto won that match. Shono won this one. They came in together and they went out together. If that isn't great storytelling, I don't know what is. Some quick observations from Tuesday's NXT show, because I I just don't have a lot to say about everything happening on the show. It's just not that interesting anymore. Trick Williams uh, had the best match of his short career with Ilya Dragunov. That was uh, a little ugly at times, but it is developmental. Uh, But you can see he's got something, though. He's already got charisma outside the ring. Inside, he's gotten better. Uh, He'll be okay when Carmelo Hayes gets called up, because as good of a pairing as they are, Williams is not main roster ready right now, the way that uh, Carmelo is. He needs to stay right where he is. That's what developmental is for. That's why they called up Legado del Fantasma and they left Electra Lopez behind because she was in no way ready to be on SmackDown. The schism stuff, the schism is is terrible. The schism is a terrible gimmick. It's dying on the vine. They, they've had no development since adding The Rock's daughter to the group. It looked like maybe adding her was giving them a shot in the arm, and it did for all of two weeks. It's just not good. And the audience doesn't care when they're out there. It's just it's just a bad gimmick. Uh, on the flip side, they did another personality piece on Sol Ruka uh, that I thought was very good. She's an example of why character development is so important. I like the training vignettes. Uh, that they sprinkled in throughout the show with Roxanne Perez and Mako Satomura ahead of their title match at Roadblock next week. That was, it was different in that Mako was the one training her, even though she's the one challenging Roxanne for the title. So I thought that was kind of unique. Stevie Turner. I have to talk about Stevie Turner. Stevie Turner, who for those who don't know, she is a, a female performer from NXT UK. Stevie Turner is doing the YouTube streamer gimmick and she stole my randomizer for Be The Booker. She randomized all the members of the women's roster and she landed on Lyra Valkyria, who's going to be her next opponent. It just wasn't the same without the buzzer or the bell sound effect. I mean, look, if you're going to do it, at least do it right. I also love, by the way, how she takes super chats. She takes super chat questions from fans, but there's no dollar amount listed. Which is the whole point of a super chat. I'm like, it's not a super chat. It's just a fucking message. But anyway, that's the gimmick that she's doing. Braun Breaker picked up a win over Jinder Mahal in an NXT championship match. It wasn't it wasn't bad. It was just dull. You know, it's fucking Jinder Mahal wrestling for the championship. I mean, what struck me watching this was how big Jinder uh, really is. See me, seeing him in there with Braun, you know, you don't always really think about it because when Jinder's on Raw or SmackDown, he doesn't stand out. If Jinder's in the ring with Sheamus or he's in there with Drew McIntyre or, or, or almost anybody, frankly, on that roster, he doesn't really stand out physically uh, in that way. The only time he ever stood out is when he got so jacked, you know, five or six years ago when uh, they put the world title on him. And he beat Randy Orton. He was disgustingly jacked. Now he actually looks healthy. He didn't look healthy back during that run. Whatever it was that he was doing. Now he looks healthy. So Braun wins. You know, it's a former WWE champion for him to get a win over. They didn't exactly build Jinder up as a big deal being a former WWE champion. It was just like another guy going in there and getting a match. 
And Grayson Waller hijacked the production truck at the end of the show. He invited Shawn Michaels to appear on the Grayson Waller Effect talk show at Roadblock next week. They're going in hard with this tease that Shawn might come out of retirement to wrestle Waller. That's what they want you to believe. Uh, as I said after Vengeance Day, though, I think it's a way for him to pick a surrogate to wrestle Waller at Stand and Deliver, and I think it ends up being Dragon Lee, who still hasn't debuted because he was dealing with some visa issues at the time, but I, I think that's all resolved now, and Stand and Deliver would certainly be the perfect place to debut him, and what better spot for him to debut in? So that's my thoughts on NXT. Now, WWE just started another season of its biography series and its rivals series on A&E. And I don't know that I'm going to be watching it every week. Uh, I think tonight it's uh, Jake Roberts' The Biography, and I think they're doing Undertaker and Mankind on Rivals. But I did watch the first episodes of each, and the biography one was on the NWO. And you can imagine it was a lot of the same stuff you've heard a thousand times about how the NWO came to be. If you already know the story, you're not going to learn much in the way of new stuff. There are a couple of things at the end. You've got Kevin Nash reacting to Scott Hall's passing. Uh, Eric Bischoff shares a, a nice story about a fan of his. But other than that, it's exactly what you would expect it to be. The thing that irritated me, and the reason I wanted to talk about this, was the portion that covered the Hogan-Sting match at Starcade 1997. A match that they had been building to for close to 18 months. And on the back of that match, Starcade did 700,000 pay-per-view buys that year. It's the most financially successful pay-per-view that the company ever did. And it was all building to Sting finally taking down Hollywood Hogan and taking the title back for WCW. This was going to be the big payoff. It should have been the greatest night in WCW history. It ended up as one of their most embarrassing. It ended up as being one of their greatest disgraces. It was not a case where they changed the outcome. The outcome was going to originally be Sting winning the title. And in the end, Sting did end up winning the title. But they changed the finish to where they did the title change in the weakest, most counterproductive, damaging way possible. Like if you tried to think of a way, okay, we're going to do this title change... But how can we fuck this up so royally? Like, how can we screw it up in the biggest possible way? That's the finish they went with. Eric Bischoff has told the story before. And he did not on this episode. But on his podcast and in other interviews over the years, he has told the story that when Sting showed up to the building that night, he was not in the physical shape that he needed to be in. So it wasn't that he wasn't in any condition to perform because he was fucked up on pills or booze or anything like that. Just physically, he looked like he had not been working out at the gym. And he had no tan. He had not been tanning himself. And this was a sign of a man, apparently, who looked like he just didn't care. He claimed Sting was going through some personal issues in his life at the time. He kind of alludes maybe they were marital issues, but he I don't think he's ever actually said. But he claims that you know, Steve, was going through some personal things in his life and uh, that may have played a role in his appearance and his overall demeanor. And so that was the reason why they felt they had to make a change. Now, I said they. It wasn't just Eric Bischoff. It was Hulk Hogan as well. Because as he tells the story, 
They were in the room. Sting comes in. They both look at Sting. And then they both have the same exact idea. And they both looked at each other. As if to say, like, what the fuck? Right? So that's the story that he has told uh, in the past. Not in this episode, though, he didn't. That cockamamie story was never even mentioned here. I have watched this match back many times over the years. This may not have been peak Sting cosmetically with, like, muscles bulging, but he looked perfectly fine to me. Was he smaller, physically smaller than Hogan that night? Yes, he was. But he looked perfectly fine to me. And he was wearing, by the way, that night a full body suit. It wasn't like he was wear, he was wrestling without a shirt on. He had new gear made. This was his first match in over a year, at least on television. So I thought he looked fine. There was not a single person in the crowd that night looking at Sting when he came out going, Oh my God, what happened to the amazing shrinking Sting? Or I can't cheer for this guy because he doesn't have a fucking tan. Again, none of this is even mentioned in this episode. The day of the show, backstage, Bischoff says that Hulk looked at me and said, Not today. Not today, brother. Okay, so now we're talking about what Bischoff does say in the special. Hulk looked at him and said, Not today. Sting is interviewed. He says, Let's just stick to the plan and deliver what we said we were going to, not this last minute stuff. Hogan is interviewed in his John 316 shirt, lying through his teeth, admitting that he had a problem with it because if you're going to beat somebody, you need to leave them better off after they're beaten than they were before. I guess Hulk was worried by losing to Sting, he would be relegated to wrestling the Universal Studios tapings for Worldwide. And he said, Eric really wasn't sure where we were going with this thing. So Hogan assigns blame for this to his friend Eric. Kevin Nash is interviewed, and he flat out says, you can't give a wrestler creative control. You just can't do it. Bischoff claims Hogan never outright used his creative control clause or threatened to use it, but that night Hulk wasn't feeling it. And it was a mad scramble. So he puts the blame on Hogan. Or was it Sting? I'm not sure. Was it Sting, whose muscles I thought were wasting away under his pale flesh? Hogan finally says, okay, brother, I'll put him over. Right? This, this, this is him talking in the special. Okay, brother, I'll put him over. Sting said that right up until the moment he came through the curtain that night, he didn't know what they were going to do. It was so chaotic during the day and changes were being talked about and changes were being made. He didn't know what was going to happen. Bischoff said they came to an agreement that the best way to go was a controversial finish to the match and that the goal was to give Hogan the fast count to give Sting the justification to then demand a rematch on the spot. The only problem is that fast count wasn't a fast count at all. Nick Patrick counted at his normal pace. And they showed footage of the of the three count. This was like the fucking Zapruder footage from the JFK assassination. They must have showed this six or seven times. They showed the footage of the three count as Hogan is narrating over it. And he says, the referee brother counts one, two, three. And Sting didn't kick out. And they cut back to Hogan at the table. He's being interviewed. He acts all shocked. He says, the plan was for Sting to kick out. And he did not kick out. Bischoff says the fast count was the last minute fix. He called it the band-aid on the original plan. But, wait a minute. Let me ask what I think is a perfectly logical question to an illogical situation. 
Why would Hogan think Sting was supposed to kick out if the plan was for a fast count? This man lies so much he can't keep all the lies straight. It makes no sense. If he believed the plan was for a fast count, Sting would not have kicked out. Yet he acts all stunned when Sting didn't kick out and he blames Sting for screwing up the finish of the match. So to recap, you have Eric Bischoff blaming Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan blaming Eric Bischoff for not knowing what he wants to do and blaming Sting for not kicking out. And you have Sting blaming everyone and asking, what the hell are we doing here? And it made Bret Hart look like a fool for beating up the referee after after the match and claiming a fast count when you could clearly see there was no fast count. It looked like Bret was having war flashbacks to Montreal and beating up Nick Patrick thinking he was Earl Hebner. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So they restart the match anyway. Sting goes on to win the title in what should have been the easiest match that Eric Bischoff has ever booked in his entire life. And it ends up being as complicated and as stressful as possible, and they ruined it. And they ruined it. And I'm sure when they came to the building, that was Bischoff's plan. But then Hogan happened. And by the way, it wasn't just the finish of the match either that sucked. Hogan took, I would say, 95% or more of that match. He basically squashed Sting. He got all the offense in the match. Sting just took it and he sold. He got almost no offense. And then Hogan dropped the leg and he pinned him clean. (laughs) Everything about this match was designed to bury Sting. And the fans still popped for the finish because they liked Sting and they wanted the belt off Hogan. Sting was the franchise guy in WCW. He was a made man. If it was almost anybody else in the ring that night being treated that way, that would have been the end of their career. As a, as a credible top star. That would have been the end of them. Now I should note, even though Nick Patrick was not interviewed for this, and he really should have been, uh, I'm hoping they just reached out to him and he, he just didn't want to participate. I don't know. But Nick Patrick told his side of the story on David Penzer's old podcast about five years ago. Right? He was the referee. He would be the one to go to and say, hey dude, what happened with this supposed fast count? This is what Nick Patrick had to say five years ago. What happened was two people, Sting and Hulk, they were the two franchise guys, and the two franchise guys were butting heads at this point in time. One guy came up to me and told me to fast count it, to get some heat, and give him an out. And the other guy said, don't fast count it, keep it nice and slow. And so the person that was in charge evidently didn't want to make a call, didn't want to pick a side, and made themselves scarce all night long to where I couldn't find them to ask them, hey, what do you want me to do? I'll let you guess who the star was who told Nick Patrick to count nice and slow. He doesn't want to name names. I know who the name is. The most credible person is the one who wasn't even interviewed for this show. The referee, he has no stake in who wins and who loses. I'll take his word over everybody else involved in this. The only thing he got wrong in that quote was saying that the man in charge, right, Eric Bischoff, the man in charge made himself scarce all night long. So he couldn't get a straight answer on what to... Yeah, because he was probably fucking scared. 
Oh, the man in charge made himself scarce all night long. I couldn't get a straight answer. He was wrong when he said that. Nick Patrick was wrong. He did speak to the man in charge. The man in charge was not Eric Bischoff. The man in charge was Hulk Hogan. And and usually, Hogan's nonsense, I laugh at it. We kind of poke fun at it. It's funny to listen to him spin all of his tall tales and all the all the bullshit that he has told over the years. But his bullshit in this episode, and, and this part specifically, really irritated the shit out of me. More than it usually does, because he is just so full of shit, I just can't hardly stand it. He sabotaged the finish because his ego would not allow him to take a clean loss. That is all this was ever about. And it is not as if he hadn't done jobs before. He lost the title to Lex Luger on Nitro. Got it back five days later, but he did the job, right? It was a great moment. Lost clean to Goldberg on Nitro at the Georgia Dome the following year. Had all the Turner executives in the Georgia Dome that night to see the show. He wanted to make a good impression, so he did the right thing for a change. But on this night... You know, you can listen to this person's version of events and you can listen to that person's version of events. He intentionally sabotaged the finish because he was selfish. And he was not thinking about anyone other than himself. Now, the episode skipped over a lot of the minutia of uh, of the NWO, especially the later stuff. Like, I don't think the casual viewer would have cared much about the NWO 2000 uh, and the less said about that later stuff, the better. They talked about the finger poke of doom. They talked about the AOL Time Warner merger. Hogan says, you know, they may have had half a chance at surviving were it not for the merger. They had a lot more problems than just the merger. So they quickly ran through the NWO's brief, just dumb run in WWE. Before skipping to Scott Hall's death, we got an emotional Kevin Nash talking about Scott for a couple of minutes And then Bischoff shared a a nice story about a female fan that he met at a Comic-Con years ago who told him the only quality time she ever got to spend with her father when she was younger, when he wasn't drunk, was Monday nights. They would watch the NWO together on Nitro. So then years years go by after Bischoff tells this story at the Comic-Con, or or hears this story at the Comic-Con and meets this woman. Years go by. The same woman tracks him down somehow and emails Eric's wife. How you track down a wrestler by getting his wife's email address, I I don't know. But uh, she was persistent, I guess. Anyway, she emailed Eric's wife, Lori, and said, My father is gone. My mother is gone. I'm getting married. Would Eric walk me down the aisle? And he did. And they shared a photo of it. He had an NWO baseball cap on as he walked her down the aisle that was very nice. That was a very nice little story at the end of the episode. But unless you're a hardcore NWO fan, I don't know that you need to spend 90 minutes of your life watching this. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Now, I also watched the Rivals episode covering the Hulk Hogan-Andre the Giant rivalry. The format is the same as it was for the first season. They have Freddie Prince Jr. hosting a roundtable with footage spliced in documentary style. Uh, they actually spend very little time on the roundtable portion of things, but they have a roundtable. The guests were Booker T, Devon Dudley, JBL, and Natalia. So if you wanted the perspective of Booker T, Devon, JBL, and Natty on Hogan Andre, then this was the episode for you. Uh, they didn't really add anything to the discussion, but watching back all of the old footage, it took me back to my childhood. Hogan against Andre is still to this day the most iconic and the most important match in WWE history. There is nothing in the modern era that even comes close. There have been modern matches that have done bigger business, but Hogan-Andre and the, and the lore around that WrestleMania show and that WrestleMania main event, I mean, it is just on another level from everything else. And that body slam is the most iconic moment. Uh, the only other moment or image from the last 25 years that even rivals it, that's been replayed probably as many times, would be The Undertaker throwing Mankind off the top of the Hell in a Cell. Uh, but that match was not big the way that Hogan-Andre was. That match was not as influential uh, as Hogan-Andre was. In the build-up to their WrestleMania match, they they lied. They claimed that Andre had been undefeated for 15 years. It even says that on the VHS. I still have the original uh, WrestleMania 3 tape in those old Coliseum video boxes that they, kind of like the snap case it came in. And it says on there, undefeated for 15 years. That was the story going into the show. That wasn't even remotely true. Uh, they said that he had never been slammed before. That wasn't even remotely true. Not only had Andre been slammed before many times, but he was slammed by Hulk Hogan on their own show at Shea Stadium. But it made for a better story to say that Andre is this undefeated figure who's never been slammed before. And now he's challenging for the first time for the World Heavyweight Championship. It made for a much better story. Who's going to say otherwise, right? I mean, unless you were at those shows and saw him get slammed and saw him lose, uh, there was no there was no internet back then. One thing the internet killed was the mystique of pro wrestling and pro wrestlers. Everyone knows everything now, and you can watch, uh, you know, Bray Wyatt, for example, be all spooky on television, and then you follow him on social media, and he's a normal person. Same with Undertaker now. Undertaker now is on social media for the first time in uh, in recent years. But imagine Undertaker on Twitter and Instagram kissing his wife and hunting geese when they were just trying to get him over as the undead zombie on television, right? I mean, it was just it was just a different time. You couldn't get away with that stuff today like that. The way you could get away with it back then, you can't do that today. But they had great footage of Hogan and Andre wrestling each other in Japan. So they were very open in this episode about how many times they worked together, even before WrestleMania 3. Uh, the Japanese footage was very cool. Hogan then did Rocky 3. He went to the AWA. Uh, or maybe the AWA was first, and then he did Rocky 3. But he ended up back in WWE. He beat the Sheik to become champion for the first time. 
One of my earliest wrestling memories was the footage of Andre pouring champagne on Hogan's head backstage at MSG after he won the title. Uh, I remember them showing it in the build-up to their WrestleMania match in 87. And uh, they showed footage of the Piper's Pit segment. Again, I traced... My earliest wrestling memories are all traced basically back to WrestleMania 3 angles. It was the Hogan-Andre stuff, and it was the angle that led to Savage and Steamboat. And that's really, you know, the earliest memories that I can recall of, of being a wrestling fan. And they showed the Piper's Pit segment with Andre challenging Hogan, I challenge you to a world championship match in the WrestleMania. And he challenges him. He rips the cross off Hogan's chest. Hogan's bleeding from the chest. And Piper asks him, he goes, will you defend your title against him at WrestleMania? Yes or no? And Hogan screams, yes! And everybody goes nuts. This is legendary stuff, man. It's just legendary stuff. Hogan claims, two of the most dangerous words in the English language, by the way, Hogan claims, that he wrote the entire match down on a legal pad, step by step, because Andre's back was in such rough shape uh, at the time, which it was, and he couldn't do much. So he made sure Andre didn't have to take any real bumps. If he did, he would be close to the ropes so he can use the ropes to get back up. The day of the show, he says, Andre's in the back. He's drinking Crown Royals like they're going out of style. He hands some to Hogan. Hogan didn't want to drink, he says, before the match, so he would dump them over his shoulder when Andre wasn't looking. That's an old bar trick of mine, by the way. Whenever I was out for someone's birthday, they they bought, they would inevitably, they would buy shots of Patron. And if I had already had a couple of shots, I didn't want to have any more. But, right, someone bought them, and here you go, right? It's it's rude to say no. It's rude to hand it back. So you take the shot, and I would try to make sure that there was nobody standing behind me. You know, preferably I'd be up against the wall or something. And everybody would go to drink, and I would toss it over my shoulder. And then I would sell it, like, ah, oh, I need a chaser, you know? I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure everybody has a story like that, but... Hogan's story has always been, he did not know what Andre was going to do, or if Andre was going to lose the match. He didn't know. He was nervous all day long. He didn't know what Andre was going to do. Even when he went out to the ring, he didn't know. Right? Now it's Hogan. So as much as I would like to believe that, I don't. There is no reason to think that Andre was going to do anything to fuck over Vince McMahon. Andre the Giant was treated well by Vince McMahon, and he knew that Vince needed him to do the honors for Hogan, because Hogan was their golden goose, Hogan was their champion, Hogan was their big star. And not only that, Andre was just, physically, he was so wrecked at the time. What What would be the purpose of Andre saying, no, I'm not doing that? No, I'm going over tonight. Doesn't make sense. Why would he go into business for himself and say that? I don't buy it. Again, it's Hogan. I think I, I think he knew exactly how the finish was going to go when he went out there. And he also claims it was Andre who called for the slam while they were in the ring. Andre shouted, slam, ball, slam. So Hogan slammed him. He did not tell the story in this special about slamming Andre and tearing every muscle in his back. He left that part out. But he slams him, right? The single most famous moment in the history of wrestling. Is Hogan picking up Andre the Giant, all those fans behind him just jumping up and down, and he body slams the Giant. Something he had done before, but never on this scale. And for the first time, this was the first time most people were seeing uh, Hogan slam Andre. The most famous moment in the history of wrestling. 
They covered the angle from the following year where Andre beat Hogan uh, with help from the uh, crooked Hebner twin who was paid off by the Million Dollar Man, or as Hogan used to call him, the Multi-Million Dollar Man. 33 million people tuned into that show on NBC. That's a mark that will never be topped ever again in wrestling. It would not even be possible today with how fragmented television is. It's just a different time. It's a different world now. They included footage of their final match together at the WrestleFest 88 show at the Outdoor Stadium in Milwaukee. Used to be home of the Brewers. I don't know if it's still, uh, oh God, what is it? Uh, County Stadium? I'm not even sure it's still open anymore. But they had this outdoor WrestleFest show that came out on a Coliseum video. Uh, I don't know if the show is somewhere on Peacock. When I search for WrestleFest on Peacock, I get the Coliseum videos for 1990, uh, 92, and 93. Because they did multiple WrestleFest videos. Uh, the 88 one does not come up. I, I have it on VHS. I bought from somebody many years ago. But there was a rumor back then that, you know, the cage match with Hogan Andre, that was originally going to be the main event for WrestleMania 4 before they decided on the idea for a tournament. I don't know how true that is, but I've heard that. Um, and they wrapped up the documentary with Sean Mooney, who is one of the talking heads on here, talking about how Andre's condition, his acromegaly, uh, just he never sought treatment for it. Like Big Show did. Big Show had the same condition that Andre had. It's like a tumor on the pituitary gland. And when he was still, I think, in his late teens, Big Show had, uh, or sometime in his teens, Big Show had surgery to remove it. Which I'm sure has extended his life by many, many years. I mean, Big Show's already older than Andre was when he passed away. Um, I believe. I believe he's older. But, you know, Mooney had uh, tears in his eyes, you know, talking about how, how sad it was to see Andre um, just deteriorate the way that he did. But he he knew he had this condition. He knew there was a fix for it. And he opted against it. He never sought treatment for it because he felt like it would take away from him being the giant. Which is what his entire career was based on. Uh, which, depending on the timeline there, doesn't make a lot of sense to me because he was already big. He was already a giant. Uh, but I don't know. Maybe he first found out about it when he was much, much, much younger. I, I don't know. But it's just sad. It's sad to think about that. Maybe he could have extended his life and he wouldn't have been all crippled up and in all that pain and agony that he was in at the end of his life if he would have had that tumor removed. Uh, they could have fixed it, but he opted against uh, doing so. And then his body just started rapidly falling apart. Uh, he was He just looked awful. I mean, if you go back and you look... He was still doing tag matches in all Japan the year before he died. He looked awful. He and Giant Baba both in those tag matches. They just couldn't do anything. And if you ever want to see Andre's final match, I mean, it's not anything happy. Uh, but he wrestled the month before he died. In Japan, it's on YouTube. It was basically a comedy match. Uh, and it's just so sad to see him like that. And Hogan was crying at the end of the episode, remembering Andre. And, you know, the one thing I will never doubt about Hulk Hogan is how much Andre meant to him and how emotional he gets when he talks about Andre. Some of the Andre stories may be embellished and they may be bullshit in some cases, but I I, I never doubted his sincerity when it came to how he feels about Andre. Uh, and he was very important to Hogan's career. Andre meant more to Hogan's career than anybody, with the exception, I would say, of maybe Vince McMahon. So I enjoyed this. Again, as somebody who grew up with his earliest wrestling memories being this feud in this period, 
to see all the, the the classic highlights and the footage and everything. I mean, yeah, it's been replayed a lot, but uh, I enjoyed it. Let's get into the uh, mailbag questions here. We got a bunch. Love hearing from you guys. You can email me, thesalamonster at gmail.com. Please include your name and where you are from when you write in. Clyde from Dallas. I agree with most of your WrestleMania predictions for the current champions and their match outcomes. For almost all of the champions, you've predicted they would lose their titles, but based on WWE history, we know some will retain. Who are the champions you believe are most likely to retain? Are there any champions you feel must drop their title against a champion that must retain? I actually think uh, out of uh, all the champions, Roman Reigns is the likeliest to retain. Uh, The second likeliest to retain is Austin Theory, if he puts the U.S. title on the line against John Cena. The champion, I think, uh, who has to drop their title more than any other is Charlotte Flair. Rhea Ripley needs to win that match. This is not uh, Tanahashi and Okada at the Tokyo Dome where Charlotte beats her two or three times before Rhea finally wins one at WrestleMania. That's not what this is. The Usos are the other one, especially if Roman retains. The Bloodline needs to take a loss at WrestleMania, at least one loss at WrestleMania. Jimmy and Jay dropping those belts should be a given. Steve in Virginia. What WrestleMania matches were you most surprised by and how good they turned out? And which ones were you most disappointed by and how bad they turned out? You know, it's funny. uh, Both matches that I was going to name here come from the same WrestleMania. WrestleMania 34. The first match since their classic at Wrestle Kingdom between AJ Styles and Shinsuke Nakamura. And it was very underwhelming. It wasn't a bad match, but it was not the dream match that it was built up to be. And they called it that in the build-up. They said, oh, it was a dream match. It did not live up to the billing. Now, that same night, they got shown up by Ronda Rousey in Ronda's very first match. That's the match that surprised me the most by how good it was. Ronda Rousey and Kurt Angle against Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. And the other match I think about as far as WrestleMania disappointments is Brock Lesnar and Dean Ambrose at WrestleMania 32. Brock Brock didn't want to do anything in that match. You know, he knew he was going back to the UFC. Ambrose was making all kinds of suggestions. He was very frustrated. Brock, did he wanted to do the bare minimum in that match. And if Brock doesn't want to do anything, there's not a whole lot you can do. So that match was a very big disappointment. Jordan from Washington, D.C. Do you think if WWE would have done Hogan Austin at WrestleMania 18 instead of Hogan Rock, it would have gotten the same reaction from the fans that night? I'm wondering if you think it could have only been The Rock in that role for that night in order to help achieve such a reaction. I think Hogan was getting cheered that night no matter who he was in the ring with, but it might have been more of a mixed reaction to the match and that I think Austin would have gotten more of a positive reception than Rock did. I don't think the fans in Toronto would have been as quick to boo Austin as they were quick to boo The Rock. But I don't think the match would have been as good if it was Austin in there instead of Rock. You know, Hogan against Austin is the biggest box office match that we could have gotten that we never did. It's bigger than Rock and Shawn Michaels, bigger than Undertaker and Sting, bigger than, you know, Bret Hart and Kurt Angle. Those are dream matches that we never got. Uh, those all would have been big attractions. They would have sold tickets. But Hogan against Austin was the biggest star 
from WWE's golden era against the biggest star from WWE's most prosperous era. Their hottest era, the Attitude Era. He was the spark, right? Rock got over and he was just about at his level and you had a lot of big star, but Austin was the spark for the Attitude Era. Hogan was the spark for their national expansion in the 80s. So you put those two in the ring together one-on-one when they could, you know, they could still go. Hogan could still go. Uh, that would have been the biggest possible match you could do. But Austin in the condition that he was in at the time and Rock in the condition that he was in, Rock was the better opponent. And I don't think Austin would have reacted very well. I don't think Austin would have reacted as well as The Rock did if the crowd turned on him in the middle of the match the way they did. Rock played that perfectly. He played off that perfectly. Uh, it really is the perfect match. Rock Hogan at WrestleMania 18 is a five-star match. I would not change anything about it. The only thing I would change is the post-match. If Hogan was going to pose, he should have posed to Real American. Instead, they had no music. He just posed. He should have posed to Real American. That's the only change I would have made. That That's how they should have closed the show. Uh, and then you have them walk up the ramp together and Hogan raises Rock's arm to give him the big endorsement. Uh, it, it was kind of goofy, you know, on commentary, them talking about how, you know, passing the torch when Rock was already a made guy. Rock, Rock was already starting to do Hollywood stuff and was going to end up being part-time soon enough. So... To hear them say, oh, he's passing the torch to The Rock. I mean, I, I understand what they were saying, but it was kind of silly. Uh, but that's how you should have closed out the show. Owen from Dublin, Ireland. Despite their long-standing disinterest in them, in the past few years, WWE has signed several TNA slash Impact Originals to varying levels of success. These include AJ Styles, Samoa Joe, Bobby Roode, Eric Young, Austin Aries, Rockstar Spud... Eli Drake, Zima Ion, even Abyss eventually made his way over in a backstage role. My question is, who of the TNA Impact Originals is the best to never get a chance in WWE? In ring, it would be Abyss. He Abyss had an offer to come in years ago for a program with The Undertaker. He would have debuted in the Royal Rumble in 2007. That was the plan. And then he would have had a WrestleMania match with him that year, but he got cold feet at the last minute because he was so loyal to TNA. He had helped build the company from the ground up. And as as he said before, you know, 2005, 2006, you know, that was a hot period for them and they were really starting to come into their own and, and he just said, how can I leave? And he decided against leaving. Not too many people would have passed up that kind of opportunity to debut at the Royal Rumble and have a WrestleMania match with The Undertaker in front of, I mean, what did they have that year? Ford Field, right? That's where they were for, that's where they're going to be for SummerSlam this year. They probably had 70,000 people, 80,000 people in the building. I can't think of anybody who would have said no to that kind of opportunity. Now, if you don't want to count Abyss because he technically does work there now, uh, the Motor City Machine Guns, I would say, would be my pick. You know, Alex Shelley had one match with NXT. He was tagging with Kushida in the Dusty Classic. So the Time Splitters got a match there, but never the Machine Guns. Owen is not the only listener from Dublin to write in this week. This comes from Finn, who wants to know, buy or sell on the bigger missed opportunity to crown a new champion. Tetsuya Naito against Okada at Wrestle Kingdom 12, or Drew McIntyre against Roman Reigns at Clash at the Castle? Both guys have had very successful careers, but it feels like each loss cost them the chance to move up to the next rung. 
and truly cement themselves as a top guy. What say you? And do you think Naito or McIntyre will have another shot at it? Uh, that is a, uh, that's a tough one. That's a good question. Naito was white hot for New Japan in 2017, I think it was, right? And it felt like, with him, it felt like a now or never thing at the Tokyo Dome. It really felt like the peak for Naito. I was surprised at the time. I reviewed the show back then. I was surprised when Okada beat him. He had that title at that point for like 500-something days. Uh, He had just set the record as the longest reigning IWGP champion of all time, I think in terms of, of total days. I, th- I think it was like his third or fourth straight Tokyo Dome main event. He was having the Roman runs reign as champion. That Roman is having now. And they kept the title on him. Ghetto kept the title on him. And looking back on it, I think Okada winning was the right choice. What they did with Naito after probably wasn't. But Okada winning was the right move. I feel the same way about Roman Reigns beating Drew McIntyre in Cardiff, even though they lugered him, <laughs> in, in effect. Uh, I mean, look at what it led to. It led to the expansion of the bloodline, all the great storytelling we've gotten with Sami Zayn and Jey Uso. At least Naito didn't sing Sweet Caroline in the ring after he lost like McIntyre did. But again, I think it was the right move because Roman is even bigger now. and We have that great build. We got that great build to Montreal in the match with Sami. Uh, I, I would buy on Naito. And I would sell on McIntyre just because Naito was so much of a bigger deal in New Japan than 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 Drew was in WWE last year. But I I still think it was the right decision on both. You know, in hindsight, looking back, I feel like Naito's time came and went. Drew, I can see holding the title again. Drew was really a victim of the COVID era. You know, he was so over at that Royal Rumble when he eliminated Brock, and then he won the title in in his big WrestleMania moment in an empty warehouse and and he had to carry the company on his back through the empty arena era. And then later on in front of, you know, a bunch of screens every week, I'd like to see him get a real run in front of actual people at some point. I think he's got a better shot at that than uh, Naito does. Now, last week I shared a message from Reggie in Iowa, who is waiting for a heart transplant. He wanted everybody to make sure they get checked, even if they're not feeling right. If you feel weird in any way with your body, please, you know, get it checked out. I got a message from Chris in Florida, who you may know as Flamethrower Fluff Salisbury from our YouTube live streams. He said that story struck a nerve with him because his father was not feeling well. Without getting too specific here, uh, his father ignored some, some pleas from his doctor to go get checked out. Weeks went by. He ended up being rushed to the hospital and then flown 50 miles away for emergency surgery. Turns out he had colon cancer. And that was causing the pain and discomfort and some other issues that he was having. So they've since removed the cancer. He's going to be starting chemo once his uh, body is strong enough for it. Uh, Had he heeded his doctor's advice, Chris says, maybe this wouldn't have happened. And so he heard the story last week, and it, like, you know, set off a light bulb in his head And so he, like Reggie, he implores all of you, please, listen to your bodies and uh, don't take any chances. And Chris, I hope they got it all. I hope that your father continues to improve. Please send him my best. And please keep sending me your emails. TheSolomonster at gmail.com is the place for any and all messages. You can follow me on Twitter as well, at Solomonster. I'm going to be back with you next Sunday, which is Revolution Sunday. It'll be episode 798 
of the podcast. And then, of course, that night is the Revolution pay-per-view. We'll be live on YouTube after that. But first, we have an entire week of streaming. Monday night, Wednesday night, Friday night. We're going to kick off the month of March. Hopefully, we'll get a hot start. Be well, stay safe, and I will see you back here next Sunday for another podcast. Until then, take care, guys. The Salamonsters sounds off. They're teasing Brock Lesnar against Omos and Bobby Lashley against Bray Wyatt. When the better thing to do would be to simply put Bray and Brock and Bobby, Triple B, in a triple threat at WrestleMania. Individually, I don't see how these matches are going to be any good. Maybe Brock looked at this and said, fuck this. I don't want anything to do with this. I'll wrestle the big guy. Maybe that's what happened here. When Brock Lesnar realized that winning an elimination chamber meant wrestling Bray Wyatt at WrestleMania, he kicked Bobby in the dick. He intentionally got himself disqualified. Because now, that's Bobby's problem. He fucked over Bobby Lashley at elimination. Brock Lesnar may be the smartest man in the room. The Salamonster sounds off. Each week, bursting with content. Podcasts, predictions, reviews, YouTube live streams, and more. Become a channel member for perks. And follow the Salamonster on Twitter at Salamonster. 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 Salamonster sounds off. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.